Howdy, everyone. Welcome to Dangerous Thoughts on Unsafe Space. I'm your host, Carter Laren. Uh, this is a series we do every, I do, every Wednesday evening. Well, almost every Wednesday evening. And it's for, you know, nerds like me who want to think about issues a little bit more deeply, get into some applied philosophy, specifically the application of reason and individualist ethics. Uh, today's show is going to be a little different. We're going to just do... I hesitate to call it an AMA because that sounds kind of weird and narcissistic. Like, ask me anything. Like, I mean, bring up topics you want to talk about and we'll have discussions. So that's kind of the, the purpose. Um, I'm going to do, uh, I'm going to prioritize people who actually click on the StreamYard link, which is in chat. So today you're only in chat if you're a subscriber. Um, no non-subscribers are in chat today. But if you are a subscriber, you will see the StreamYard link. You can click on it and... Uh, Beverly's kind of managing it. So if you want to talk about something, uh, yeah, we'll prioritize people who do that. Otherwise, uh, we will prioritize questions from and comments from Discord, which is for, you know, our, our paid community. And also we have some comments from YouTube. So we'll join, join that. Beverly doesn't realize that the message is pinned at the top. So she just felt the need to re-chat it. Very good, Beverly. Um, first, before we start, if you're new to Unsafe Space, welcome. Uh, this is a channel dedicated to basically lots of things. The, the overall theme is is kind of saving Western civilization, moving the Enlightenment forward, not going backwards. Um, we got a lot of different shows. Earlier today, we had a show called Rebel Civics hosted by Keith Bissett. Um, I think that was about the war on the government's war on babies and baby formula. Uh, yesterday, we had a show called 451 Degrees. That's... Uh, also on Tuesdays, uh, every other week, I think, with Alex Maselli, that's about censorship. And she discussed, uh, I forget what she discussed, but she had Ryan David Tuttle on yesterday. Um, and Mondays, every Monday, we do Narrative Dissonance, which is uh, a show in which we bring on kind of outside journalists or podcasters or whatever, people outside the mainstream to talk about how the mainstream is lying to us and what we should be talking about. And then last but not least, every Thursday evening, we have Token Minority Report with our very own producer, Beverly and sometimes Alex joins her, and they just kind of nerd out on pop culture stuff. So, um, oh, and this Friday we have an episode of, not every Friday we do this, but this Friday we have an episode of um, Free Association. Last week it was an interview with Scott Horton. This week it is an interview with Jeremy Kaufman, who is the uh, Libertarian candidate for Senate, for U.S. Senate in New Hampshire. Also, aspiring lizard person. So you can check that out. Our next book club, book clubs are about once a month, uh, Sunday morning specific time. Our next book club is House of Leaves by Mark Danielowski. That's on June 12th. And uh, that's being hosted by Alex Maselli. If you want to host a book club, if there's a book you're very excited about and you're in our community, just let Beverly know in Discord or whatever. And, uh, and we're going to have people start doing that. We've had a few people reach out and say they're specific books they want to host they want to be the advocate for and host book club for so if that's if that's you you've got a book like that just let us know all right oh also don't forget to go share unsafe space content i don't care if it's this show although i'm biased i like this show but there's other shows share any show uh share it with your friends uh if you don't want to share it on social media because you're a pussy share it privately that's fine uh we'll mock you a little bit but it's still okay don't forget to like share and subscribe all that kind of stuff and if you want to support us monetarily which we wouldn't mind because this does cost time and money. Um, you can throw some fiat at us over at unsafespace.com. It's access to the Discord server. You get prioritized questions. You get a mug that's shaped like a grenade that the TSA hates shipped to you. 
all that kind of cool stuff. All right. Let's do this. It's going to be a little casual today. Shout out to the people that are in chat. So let's see. We've got we've got someone who's here who joined StreamYard, but he says he doesn't. I actually don't know if it's he. I'm um, maybe misgendering. He says he doesn't have anything to contribute at the moment. <laughs> so I don't know why he's here, but that's all right. If you want to join, let Beverly know. So um, since we don't have uh, anyone who wants to come on camera at the moment, which is fine. Um, I'm going to go, I'm going to prioritize some Discord questions. This one is from Expat Limey. Expat Limey says, Carter, do you think that the disagreeable slash agreeable trait correlates in some way to outcomes in the three P's you mentioned in this post? The three P's that I mentioned were philosophy, politics, and psychology. Um, okay, so first of all, uh, so the, the, just for those of you who don't know um, what expat Limey is talking about in the five factor model of uh, of personality, uh, there is well the five factor model. I, I understand is my understanding is the only empirically derived model for personality traits. Um, so it's different than like you hear people say, oh, "I'm INTJ" or whatever. That's the Myers Briggs stuff. Um, a lot of that stuff was based on theory. The five-factor model is basically just based on large surveys of questions uh, designed to get at certain traits, and things kind of fell out from the math. They fell out from the statistical analysis, and you ended up with a group of five general factors for personality, and that's called the five-factor model. So it's it's empirically derived rather than theoretically derived, like Jungian stuff or whatever. And the five factors um, are agreeableness, neuroticism, openness, uh, conscientiousness and extroversion. So those are the five factors. And so this this person's asking, Lamy's asking, do I think that the agreeableness trait, or obviously it's it's inverse disagreeableness, uh, correlates in some way to philosophy, politics, and psychology? So obviously the answer for psychology is by definition it correlates to psychology. So I don't think he means that. Let's talk about philosophy. Um, my guess on this is that obviously I've not done tests. My guess is that all five of the five factor model traits correlate to philosophy. Um, that doesn't mean they cause a certain philosophy. It doesn't mean they, that if you have a trait, you'll believe a certain thing. And I, I would highly doubt that the traits are the relationship between traits and philosophy is super simple. Like, high agreeableness equals postmodernist or anything like I don't I don't think that's what it is I, I doubt it's straightforward um but maybe it's worth just talking about looking at your consciousness for a second and what what your consciousness means right you have if you think about this is something that you know I'm not a I'm not a this might surprise you I'm not a woo woo kind of guy uh but uh one of the purposes of meditation is to kind of figure out how you're consciousness works. One of the rational purposes of meditation is to kind of figure out what's going on in your consciousness and get to be familiar with how um, thoughts arise and feelings arise and, and actually be able to live a more conscious life. And um, what you, if you've ever kind of tried this, what you'll discover very quickly is that um, your, your conscious space, right, is 
is kind of interrupt driven. There's sense data that just impinges on it, right? Your your leg hurts, you hear a bird, whatever, like things are happening, you know, visual information is, is impinging this, this space of consciousness. Um, and thoughts are one of the things that come in and impinge. It's kind of this, these interrupts constantly. And ultimately, you have a choice really whether to think about one of those, whether to kind of grab a hold of it or let it grab a hold of you, or to um, let it go and be pulled in the direction of the next thing that comes up, right? Um, so in other words, it's this, you have this ability to either like focus on that or, or let it go. Um, and I think in some ways, this is kind of the essence of personal, personal responsibility as, as humans. Um, you know, uh, you can choose to like, sometimes that, that information that comes in is uncomfortable. Um, you don't like it for whatever reason it's, it's bothersome or, you know, whatever. And you can choose to either think about it anyway, um, or you can choose to suppress it or evade it or not think about it. And in, I think in many ways, what you do is, you know, and what you, what you habituate to is a function of how responsible you are as a human to your um obligation to be to be human right and to, to to live as a human and to think and so in that sense i think you know evasion is kind of one of the ultimate sins if i can put sin in quotes so uh philosophy or sorry psychology will determine how you think about things and how you or how you feel about things not think about them really but how you feel about these things and these sense data comes in thoughts come in your psychology kind of determines how you feel about this stuff um which you know based on what i was just talking about if you think about it that way well that that means that your psychology is what dictates how comfortable or uncomfortable a particular thought or experience is to you right that's that's kind of your psychology um and so i've talked about this dance between psychology and philosophy before um where uh psychological traits and and uh maybe psychological dysfunctional traits or just maladaptations or um willing evasions kind of lead to the development of bad philosophy and bad philosophy as a rationalization and then bad philosophy kind of enables more psychological dysfunction and this kind of happening historically gradually over time um so so imagine it happening this way like let's just do an example um Let's say you're confronted with a feeling of discomfort because uh, you see a homeless person and you empathize with them. You see that and you like, that's not a state that, uh, that I would want to be in. You, you empathize with them. You want to help. Um, and let's assume that your desire to help here is genuine and sincere uh, and not for some other reason. Um and you look out and you see all the other homeless people that there are in your city, maybe, and you and you extrapolate out and you say, wow, the magnitude of this problem countrywide or even worldwide is 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 very big. Um, and, you know, your empathy, you get caught up in that empathy and you realize that you can't help them all yourself. You can't, couldn't possibly do this. And so some ideas may start 
to occur to you, like the idea of maybe organizing a charity and convincing people that this is a this is something they should spend their time and energy on. Um, and that idea might seem very daunting and difficult. You might feel intimidated by it um, and even defeated by it because the causes may be complex and how to actually solve it might be complex and convincing other people of it is complex. Like it's, it's, it's a hairy issue. And so you, that, that idea might come to you like, Oh, I could do something. I could start a thing. And like, that might be kind of daunting and you might feel, and like I said, intimidated or defeated by it. So maybe another thought comes to you and you wonder, well, maybe the government should do something. They're big. They do big things and they have apparently have a lot of resources. Let's assume you don't understand how economics works and where they get their money. Um, and along comes me. And I say, hey, there's this thing called individual sovereignty. Uh, a corollary of that is private property. It's immoral to take property from other people without their permission. That's called stealing. So, uh, you know, the government actually has no way to fund this without stealing. We'll, we'll say borrowing and printing are forms of stealing. So the, the government has no way to really do this without stealing. So the, the concept of individual rights prohibits you from using the government to solve this. You're going to have to go I'm sorry, but you're going to have to go the hard route because there's a principle involved here and you can't do that, right? And so, you know, the unfeeling, the uncomfortable feelings come up and they're like, okay. And then a leftist comes along and a leftist says, well, Carter's got it wrong. There's this concept of public good and that trumps individual sovereignty completely. And solving homelessness is for the public good. Now, this sounds better. You like this. It makes you feel better about uh, having your empathy eased or, or, or the, the discomfort of your empathy uh, eased a little bit and makes you makes you feel better about it. Um, and so then I say, well, what's the public good? And who gets to define the public good? This is a problem. This doesn't actually have any meaning. Let's have a conversation about what it means, what public good means. Now, that conversation feels really uncomfortable to you. You don't want to have to think about that. And so this, this conundrum has arisen in your, in your conscious, um, in your, in your, you feel a particular way about it, right? You've, you've got a choice here. You can think about this contradiction. Hey, Carter's making some points about public good and saying who gets to define it and what does it really mean? It's not a real concept and, and it doesn't, it's, it contradicts individual sovereignty or I could ignore Carter. I can ignore that. I don't like it. It doesn't feel good. And I'm just going to go with what the leftist guy said. That will make me feel better. Right. And so you can either adopt, um, a philosophical stance here because uh, you've thought about it and you think it's correct or because it just justifies your evasion, right? You can say, that, well, this, this justifies my evasion. I don't want to think about it. Here's a nice philosophy I can pick off of the tree. It's a low-hanging fruit, public good, boom. I can use it to justify this. I don't have to do the hard work of thinking. Thinking hurts. It's um, It emotionally hurts because it makes there's contradictions I got to face. So um, I'd rather have something that just justifies my desire to not think about this. Um, and um, it'll rationalize what I want to be true and it gets lets me away from my discomfort. And so in that way, you can imagine personal psychology affecting your philosophy because now you've kind of like gone down this, this path of the public good is a valid concept and blah, 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 blah. And you've avoided the path of a rational philosophy that asks about individual rights and, and things that contradict them and, and brings up hard questions like what the hell does the public good mean and who gets to decide it? And isn't that a problem, right? Now, that was all from the perspective of, of a sincere person. You could tell the same story from the perspective of someone who's completely insincere. They're not driven by empathy at all. But let's use the example here that Limey brought up, agreeableness. Let's say that they're high in agreeableness. 
right? Which means they want to avoid confrontation. That's one of the things that people with higher levels of agreeableness do. They don't like direct confrontation. Um, so they tend to be yes men, right? Well, what does that make you uh, when you're hanging out with other people and they have a particular stance on issues? Um, and you just have a high level of agreeableness. Well, you tend to be what I would say Ayn Rand called a social metaphysician. Um, which is you look around and you say, well, what do other people praise? What do other people think is true or right? And I'll do that because that's what they do. And it soothes your need for high agreeableness and la lack of conflict, right? Because you just, I'm going to go along with my peer group. Um, and so now you've adopted a, a philosophy here, not because you've thought about it, um, but because you have a high level of agreeableness and that high level of agreeableness translates into a lot of discomfort whenever there's conflict. And so you just take the path of least resistance and agree with your peers because that's the path of least conflict. So in summary here, I think agreeableness could play a role in the adoption of philosophy and politics because um, obviously politics is just derived from philosophy. So, right. Um, so it could play a role in uh, philosophy and politics. Um, especially in relation to like a social group. If you've got a social group, you you tend to uh, tend to just follow them if you've got high level of agreeableness. This, by the way, is why uh, there's lots of subcultures in the world. This is why the subculture of Hollywood um, tends to uh, eventually kind of bleed and the subcultures of university tend to bleed into culture eventually because you get people uh, accepting philosophies and ideas and then acting on them and transmitting them to the rest of us either through movies or media or through leaving and going into the workforce and having a job and having accepted these ideas. Um, so it could be, it could be that psychological traits uh, do this. Doesn't mean if you have high, high agreeableness, you have to do this, but it means it's more difficult for you to resist the crowd, right? So that's something that you have to be aware of and work on um, because you're shirking responsibility by evading and going with what feels good. I hope that answers that question. Um, all right. I don't see any super chats, and I don't see anyone else in thing in uh, in Streamyard. So I am going to go on to the next question. Also from Discord. Let's see. This is from Sarah Tar. Um, Sarah Tar says, "Do you think it's likely the U.S. will get actively involved in Europe?" with an actual war declaration? If yes, what's your read on a draft? Signed, mom of a boy who turned 18 in April trying to decide how much to learn about illegal immigration to Mexico. I hear you, Sarah. Um, <sighs> all right. First of all, I'm not an expert on foreign policy, so I don't know what the U.S. is about to do uh, or how close we are to anything like that. I do think, based on the history of the United States, it's unlikely that an actual war declaration would ever happen. Um, we haven't declared war since, I think, World War II. So, um, But that doesn't rule out a de facto proxy war. Like, we do that all the time. Um, so... Uh, you know, the, the military industrial complex absolutely loves the proxy wars and the 
uh, skirmishes around the world and U.S. getting involved. So that seems likely uh, that it would happen. And the U.S. government's foreign policy, well, generally the U.S. government has a history of incompetence. And our foreign policy is a history of incompetence and escalation. So I think uh, the idea that we might in the next several years get involved in a shooting war in Europe is not out of the question. Again, I'm not an expert on foreign policy. I don't think we would declare war because we just never do that anymore. Um, I would say if there was an actual declaration of war um, in Europe, and I, I don't mean to be hyperbolic, but if there was an actual declaration of war in Europe, I don't, I don't know that I would flee to Mexico. I might keep your kids home so you guys can prep for the potential of a nuclear war. Move somewhere where you think it's safe. Um, not that I think a nuclear war is likely, but it's better to be safe than sorry because the consequences of being wrong about that are quite high. I don't think anyone wants a nuclear war. Even Raytheon and Halliburton don't want nuclear wars. I, I don't think any like very few people are that that evil um, and and nihilistic that they really want a nuclear war. But as we just mentioned, the U.S. government is pretty incompetent. So the fact that they don't want one doesn't mean that they won't stumble themselves into through incompetent foreign policy. Again, I don't think it would happen. It's it's unlikely. I'm not saying like, you know, go right now in the back and start building a bomb shelter. But if we'd actually declared war in Europe, I personally, I would start to worry quite a lot, even if it was a 10% probability that would happen and a 90% probability that everyone would call me a, a crazy person, you know, 10 years later when nothing happened and I told everyone to go prep and, and nothing happened. Like, okay, fine. I'll take that because the, the, the small chance that it does happen is pretty catastrophic. Uh, Obviously, the draft itself is immoral. I don't think you need to be told that. Um, I think it's immoral, even if it's used purely defensively, like in a Red Dawn situation. Although, in a Red Dawn situation, no one's going to avoid the draft. I mean, they're, they're going to fight. And if they don't want to fight for the government, uh, that says something about the legitimacy of the government they're defending. So, um, like, okay. Uh, but this isn't, this wasn't even a defensive war. So, um it's certainly if they declared a war and then if they declared a draft, clearly you gotta, you gotta get out and avoid the draft. Um, absolutely. I, you know, again, I don't think that's super likely if, if they got into a war in Europe and declared a draft, something else has gone wrong and you should be looking for places to survive nuclear winters. All right. <laughs> Silverlock, Silverlock sends a super chat to prime the pump. All right, Silverlock. Well, thank you for priming the pump. Um, but I don't, you know, I have nothing to talk about with priming the pump. I guess we could talk about gas prices, which are uh, insanely high in California, but uh, they're insanely high everywhere. So, all right. Someone said, someone in chat says, stop talking about psychology. It's imprecise. It's astrology at best. Uh, I disagree with you, but I kind of agree with you. So, um Psychology is barely a science, if that. It is in its infancy. There's a lot of made-up, arbitrary assertions and theories that get treated as if they're real. However, humans do have psychologies. Uh, 
neurotransmitters do function in certain ways and moods do happen and tendencies do happen. And like I said, the five factor model, like there is, you know, you can kind of categorize people's personalities in some kind of vague way. Will they always behave that way? No, but is there a tendency? So I, I don't view psychology as astrology at all. Astrology is not astronomy at the beginning when no one knew anything. Astrology is just bullshit. It's just mysticism, right? Um, actually, we could argue that, uh, that there was an origin of truth in astrology, but not any mysticism at all. Uh, that's maybe another conversation, but but it's that's just bullshit. Uh, so that's but psychology is not so psychology. I don't. It's not like that. As far as, well, not just as far as I understand. Like I would no. It's not like that. It is studying something real, which is that humans do have psychological dispositions, but it's so nascent and, um, and psychology has is so not rigorous that a large, large percent of it is absolute bunk and you don't need to pay attention to it. Um, but you know, maybe in a hundred years, uh, it'll be at a point where maybe we were with Newtonian physics. So it was like some kind of general laws that we understand. I, I don't know, unless it continues along the path of not giving a crap about the scientific method, in which case it'll always kind of be bunk. Um, so, all right. How high is it in California right now? Uh, Silverlock. I'm going to answer Silverlock because he's super chatting. Uh, this morning I went to the cheapest place I could find. And it was six bucks a gallon. Um, that was with a credit card. I didn't realize until after I, I would have saved 10 cents a gallon. It was $5.89 if I had done cash. But that was the cheapest place I can find. And that was not in downtown anywhere. That was in the outskirts. I imagine if I drove into downtown San Francisco, it's got to be it's gotta be like seven mid sevens. I mean, it was, it was like somewhere around seven near me recently. So, uh, it's, it's pretty, it's pretty horrible. All right. Let's do, you know, I, I didn't know how this, this, uh, show would go. I didn't know if I would have a bunch of people that wanted to, to jump on AV, but you're all, no one wants to jump in the video. So I'm just going to keep going. Um, all right. Thousand year view. Also from our Discord. Thousand year view says, "Oh, this this is actually a long thousand year view." And Motown got into a big discussion about a question. So let's have let's let's have it out. Uh, thousand year view says, "Do you think greed is good, like you hear many other objectivists claim, or do you actually know how to think?" So not a leading question. Uh, and then, what's your definition of greed? That's the question. He <laughs> okay. Uh, and then Motown jumps in and says, I don't think objectivists say greed is good. I've read Karl Popper, who is Rand's contemporary. Yeah, but he wasn't an objectivist. Uh, and he writes about self-interest and how far the left misuses the term. So that's something. Does anyone say greed is good? Greed is when an incentive becomes disconnected from reality, in my opinion. Thousand Year View says, yes, greed is good is even a book published by Jonathan Honig and many others. I agree with you, though. It's obviously bad. I had one popular objectivist tell me Madoff wasn't greedy enough. Well, I, I can answer the Madoff thing. That's because um, Madoff regrets it. He says he is he is happier in jail, having his scheme collapsed when the, he was the height of his uh, doing his scheme. So um, 
the argument there would be he wasn't greedy. We'll have to talk about the word greedy, but he wasn't, quote, greedy enough in, in that he wasn't selfish enough in that he wasn't really looking after himself. Um, and he was doing something in the short term that actually harmed his psychology and that didn't make him happy. So that's why I've heard Jerome Brooks say that as well, and a guy who I don't agree with uh, on many things lately. Um, but I've heard him say that about Madoff. So, um, okay. Jonathan Honig, I also, I know Jonathan, not well. Uh, he sent me one of his books to review before it was published, and I um, I didn't review it because uh, he, they went off on the alt-right without really noticing that Woke was happening, and this was like at the beginning of Woke, and I was like, how guy, how can you guys be, it wasn't just him, he, it was a collection of essays, and I was like, how, how can you guys be this blind to Woke? Um, so I didn't really like it, but I like him generally or often I, I have in the past. I haven't listened to what he said recently. Um, so, but if he's writing a book called greed is good, or if he did write a book called greed is good, which I assume is, is true. Um, a couple things I would say, uh, first of all, good is a value judgment, right? And as we know, all value judgments need a valuer and a purpose. So good to whom for what? That begs that question. Now, it's the title of a book, not an argument. So I don't know what he's saying there. I imagine because he's very focused on Honig is very focused on economics and capitalism. So because uh, he's like a he runs he's like a hedge fund manager or something like that's his wheelhouse. Right. He's doesn't he doesn't run around talking about, you know, uh, the analytic synthetic dichotomy and epistemology like he talks about capitalism and money. Um, I imagine that. uh what he would he means there is that the desire to acquire wealth when it's exercised in a free market leads to creation of wealth like and in a free market the only way you can create wealth is through action that others value it's through productive action that other people voluntarily exchange money for something they they think is productive so when that happens the standard of living goes up for everyone you have um, more productivity in the economy. If people are pursuing the creation of wealth, um, they need to be pleasing other people to do that. Um, so the standard of living goes up. Uh, obviously, the assumption here is that people value things that raise their standard of living, not lower it. So if everyone values nuclear bombs, I guess, uh, you know, standard of living doesn't get raised. <laughs> but in generally in a free market, like that's the idea that most people are looking, looking for something that they value and that and, and on average, most of what people value is a good thing. And so you, you end up with this productive action and you end up with, um, you know, wealth creation being a something that kind of rising tide lifts all boats kind of thing. I imagine that's what he means. And in that way, it's true. But my intuition was to say, well, greed is an emotion. That was my first intuition. Um, but I, I decided I would look it up because I haven't looked up the definition of greed. So I did. Oxford English Dictionary says, inordinate or insatiate longing, especially for wealth, avaricious or covetous desire. Um... I also looked in my old dictionary on my shelf. Uh, it, it was something about excessive desire being the, the definition. Um, first of all, I think this is kind of a shitty definition, but it is what it is. You know, I'm not the definition police. So um, <sighs> saying it's inordinate longing. Well, 
inordinate just means not normal. That's not a philosophical argument. It's not really, it just means like something out of the ordinary. Like that's not, that doesn't have any moral status. If the ordinary is crap, inordinate is good. If the ordinary is is great, maybe inordinate is bad. So that doesn't mean anything. Um, like it doesn't matter to me that something would be inordinate or not. Insatiate makes it sound pathological. So does this excessive desire from the other one. It makes it sound pathological. Um, so if, if you define greed in those terms, then I would say, well, it's kind of by definition bad, right? Because if whatever emotion it is, isn't excessive or kind of pathological in this way, then, then you would say, well, by the dictionary would say, that's not greed. It's like, all right, well, if you have to be pathological and ex I'm putting excessive in quotes, cause I'm not sure what that means, but if it's gotta be like problematic in some way, if it's gotta be causing problems cause it's pathological and too much, too much implies like there's a problem with it. Right. Then, then it's not greed if you don't do that. So therefore greed by definition is bad, right? Like that's, uh, you know, it kind of implies self-destruction saying something is excessive or pathological kind of implies this self-destruction. I don't think that's how most people use the word greed, although maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I misuse the word greed. I don't know. I think most people, when they use the word greed, they think of like just a general desire to increase wealth. Um, and certainly the left does this, right? They left acts like, Oh, um, this desire to increase wealth is bad. This, this like, wanting money is bad this is a bad thing and we can't you know we have to limit that emotion somehow um and so obviously i disagree with that um but i'll say emotions emotions generally are neither good nor bad an emotion is just even hate an emotion is just an emotion it's not good or bad it's just motivation it's how you feel that's all it is and with any emotion, let's take greed. You can go two directions with that emotion, right? At least two directions, but you go two directions with it. You could, you know, we talked about things impinging your consciousness before, right? You could choose to not run that emotion through your prefrontal cortex, right? You can be like, I'm not going to think about the long-term consequences of, of impulsive action based on this emotion. I'm so if it's, if it's desire for wealth, let's say, um, I'm just going to, I have a desire for wealth. I'm just going to pursue it exclusively, right? Um, and that's what I'm going to do my entire life. Uh, and okay, uh, I guess I guess you could do that. Will you be happy? Will that work? Right? You could ask like same thing with heroin. There's a desire for heroin. You could inject it. You could. There's a question you could ask. Well, you should ask. You should stop and be like, Will this make my life better? Right? Same thing with any emotion. Will this action I want to take based on this emotion make my life better, right? Um, in the long run, is it is it good action? Is it good for me? Um, and you know, that's a question of like, what are your goals? What are your you know desires? Self actualization, happiness, satisfaction, right? Emotions are motivational, right? And I think evil or or harm to you sometimes harm to others, right? tends to happen when you act on your emotions without using your rational mind to think through the consequences of acting on those emotions, right? So this, let's say greed is just a desire. Let's just use the word desire or the, the phrase like desire for wealth. Well, um, if you decide, if you don't think this through and you say, well, I like, I want wealth, I want money. So I'm going to focus on wealth gain at the expense of my honor, my integrity, my family, my happiness, um, you know, my self-actualization, well, greed's going to lead you to destruction. 
It's what Bernie Madoff did in that case, right? But uh, I think good things happen to you when you use that emotion uh, for something that you've thought through. You say, okay, I'm going to use my rational mind to think through the consequences of what I want to do, what action this emotion is inspiring an action in me. Is that action in my best interest long term? Right? And, you know, you want a long, you're planning long term for this maximal happiness or self-actualization, psychological health, a healthy life, whatever. You say, okay, well, this is this is the action I want to do. Will it lead to this? Right? And with the acquisition of wealth, this is um, a thing that people, this is a, a question people have to ask themselves all the time. There are plenty of people who, who make the decision that they really just want to pursue wealth and they don't get married and they don't have kids. And I assume some of them are happy with that in their, in their late life. Many of them turn out to not be. And they said, that was a, I didn't think this through, right? I didn't really think this through. I had this desire. Um, maybe it was based on status or just based on whatever, just their, just their, their desire for money. And they didn't think it through. And it turned out to be a, a self-destructive thing that they did. They, they, they focused exclusively on this, but many people say, you know what? I could have this particular life. You know, I have a friend. I assume he's happy, by the way, but it wasn't. This isn't something I wanted to do. I have a friend in high school who uh, I was always way better at math and everything else. Uh, everything. I don't mean some ass. I was way better at math in most subjects than he was. He was a, a better tennis player by far, um, and he was better socially, right? Uh, but I was way better at math and that kind of stuff than than, than he was. And he wanted to be an actuary. Um, at first he wanted to be an actuary. Um, and then he decided he wanted to, uh, go to wall street. So he went to school, he majored in math. Um, then he got a job on wall street. Uh, he ended up running a giant fund. I think he ended up became the CEO of this fund managing, I don't know, hundreds of millions of dollars. Uh, and he seems happy and he has a wife and kids now. And he seems, he seems like he didn't do that exclusively and, and didn't destroy his life that way, but that was very important to him right? Uh, the money was very important to him. That was a, that was an important thing. I went to college for creative writing. Now I switched into electrical engineering eventually and because I liked cryptography and whatever, but I, I was not focused on making money. Um, I don't know that I necessarily made the right decision in what I did choose, but I know the right decision for me was not to go to wall street. And I probably could have, I had the skill set to do, to do what he did in the sense of, uh, the math skills. I might not have had the social skills to do it, but I had the math skills to do what he did um, and just to, to go do that. But I, that's not the life I wanted. I didn't want to do that. That wouldn't have made me happy. I didn't care. Uh, I didn't care that much about money. Um, and, you know, for better or worse, um, those are the decisions I made. But I, I think it would have been miserable if I had done that. So that's my long about answer. That's my <laughs> roundabout answer about greed. I, I don't, I think it's, you know, if defined the way it is in the, in the OED, um, the Oxford English Dictionary, uh, it's kind of by definition a bad, destructive thing. If you're going to define it colloquially and use it how people usually use it, it's just an emotion. It depends what you do with it. And like all emotions, you got to run it through that prefrontal cortex. Think through. Just like we talked about uh, the homeless situation and the empathy, you got to run it through. Otherwise, that empathy will be weaponized against you. I'll weaponize against society and you'll make short-term bad decisions based on it. Ooh, we have someone who wants to join. Uh, now's a good time. All right. Hello there. Hey, 
How you doing? Uh, I'm doing wonderful, Frank. I, I should just start by saying that, like, I know that your that your thing says calls from your community. I just want to open with the fact that I do not know anything about this program. I was just very intrigued by the title and the fact that you are doing call-ins. So I just yeah, wanted to open up with that cool. fact. What, what's your name? What can I call oh, you? My name is Ace and Deuce. I just don't. I don't really go by like an actual name too much, just because like That's online fine. people know me by that more than anything else. All right. Well, Ace and Deuce, this is a show where we kind of. Uh, we strive to be rational and focus on uh, individualism ethically. Um, but, mm. you know, I we just like interesting discussions. It's kind of uh, esoteric for some people. But if you're into if you're nerdy, welcome and and <laughs> let's have a discussion. So what do you want to talk about? I mean, I don't I don't know. Like, uh, what, what, like, what do you have like a topic that you were talking about generally? Because frankly, I, I generally say that I can talk about just about anything. Like, uh, as far as just like, if you ever had any topic that you were already talking about, I'd be more than happy to talk uh, about like. Well, I'm answering questions from, uh, from the community right now. And I just answered a question on greed. Did you hear that? Or were you elsewhere? On, on, on what? I apologize. Greed. On greed. I did not hear. I did not hear about it, but no. I mean, so the uh, question was, is greed good or bad? I mean, I don't. That's that's a tough question to answer, isn't it? Because like then you get into like what is good and bad. It's like it's not necessarily good or bad. As is most things, that's somewhat of a gray answer, isn't it? Like greed, as in like greed, I guess functionally implies negativity. It implies excessive, excess, excessive, excessivity. Like. It's not saying a desire. It's being like greed, as in you want even more of it than you probably than you than you reasonably should want. Like then that implies that it's negative. But I also feel as though that depends on what your personal definition of greed is, because it's like I, I, I we can just right, sit here right now and define what greed means. Like we can actually well, do what that. we did was looked it up in the OED, and it yeah. was actually not far off from what you said, um, yeah. which is. An inordinate or insatiate longing, especially for wealth, avaricious or uh, covetous desire. So, um, so I, mean, I think so, the the so functionally with that definition, then it doesn't have to be harmful. Like a covetous mm -hmm. desire doesn't necessarily mean need to be harmful. It could just be something that you want to claim for yourself like, like you could be like i want to be the champion of this game i want to be the champion of this sport like that's what right. you want to do like you want to claim that goal that's your that's your that's the thing you are greedy to get like i, I guess functionally would be the way that they i don't think most people would use that word in that way but apparently that's fits the definition well, the definition is kind of weird, right? Because the first part says inordinate or insatiate longing, and that decide that has that self-destructive factor that you were yeah, talking about. Yeah, that has that in, implication of right? negativity. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And the second half, avaricious or covetous desire. Well, avaricious is has kind of a negative connotation as well, and covetous actually sort of does. I'm not sure it should, but I think covetous is I mean, meant maybe to have because of like the biblical implications, but like. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's it. That yeah. would be like reasonably understood. But like people like hear that and they immediately think like, "Oh, don't covet thy neighbor" and all that kind of stuff. You know? Right. Well, let's. I'll ask you since you're here. What uh, do you think coveting is wrong? I mean, I like coveting is in stealing. Like, or like uh, now I feel no, like no. Coveting is just coveting. wanting something your neighbor has. Right? It's like it's uh, envy. 
I mean, I don't necessarily think that's wrong. It's a human emotion. Like, it's just like, it, it, your response to that feeling can be wrong. Like, you can choose to do, like, horrible things because you envy someone. But, like, you could also choose to do very positive things because you envy someone. You could be like, oh, I really envy how that person acts, so I'm going to emulate them and try to become better like they are. Like, yeah. you know? It's like, that's a positive way to do about that. You could also envy someone and be like, I'm going to steal their life. You know what I mean? Like, not like kill them, but you know what I mean? Like, literally just steal the things that they have. Like, right. it's definitely a thing. I want his shoes. One, one, yeah. one moment. All right. Uh, while you're doing that, I'll go on to another, I'll go on to another question. Uh, all right. Let's see. Motown. God, it's Dawn says, God says coveting is bad, Carter. Yeah, although uh, I apologize, I, I had to speak to someone there for a moment. <laughs> that's all right. Um, someone in chat saying God says governing is bad. I would ag- I would agree with you though, but I don't think emotions. I mean, I just talked about this. I don't think emotions are inherently bad or good. It's what you choose to do with them, yeah, um, and, and how like, you act on them. And so, and I feel yeah. like most people would agree with that, right? Like even people that would just say like that, like those emotions are like bad. Like you know, like like a Buddhist would probably say that it's not a good thing. Like, it's just not good to have those earthly desires. Like, but they would also probably say that it's human and natural to have those desires. It's just the path to enlightenment means giving up that desire. Like, choosing like becoming to take that desire and do nothing with it. <laughs> you know? Right. Right. I mean, someone in chat also now is saying envy is not covet. Coveting is wishing to take something that is not rightfully yours. Yes, but it's still wishing, right? Like, if I wish, well, if let's like say, one second, covet. If I wish to take my neighbor's car, but I don't take my neighbor's car. Instead, that wish I channel into earning the money to to buy a similar car. Uh, Seemingly, I, like, again, I would say as long as it's an emotion, I don't, I, I wouldn't classify it as as bad or good. And this is the difference between Christianity uh, and their view of morality and mine, which is, I'm not going to condemn you for how you feel, but I am going to condemn you for how you act on those feelings. And I would say acting on those feelings includes uh, stewing on it. So if you sit around and stew on your covetousness uh, over your neighbor's car, that's not healthy. And it's not going to help you in self-destructive, and, and therefore I would, I would say no to this. Yeah, I mean that's that's true. It's like that's pretty much what we're. I mean, we're getting into like the, uh, we're we're basically getting into like the definitions of things, right? So let I don't felt like it was worth redefining what covet meant here. I just pulled it up. But like, what is the definition the in OED? It was like it was just to yearn or possess to yearn right. to possess or have it doesn't necessarily mean negative it doesn't necessarily have that negative negative thing even though like as someone else in chat just like said look like they just immediately implied to themselves that it was negative although frankly the fact that we all do see it as negative just through the fact nature of how language works means that it is negative in a way right because if if the large mm-hmm. number of people feel as though it's negative then that redefines what the word means, or at least redefines how people feel about the word, right? Well, that's the difference between connotation and denotation. And there's Alex. Yeah. <laughs> Alex is and here, Alex. everyone. Hi, everyone. Alex, this is Ace and Deuce, who just uh, 
the guy's got some it's good he just like he just jumped in he's never been here he saw what was going yeah. on he's like all right i'll do it yeah no i've been yeah. watching <laughs> actually <laughs> yeah. i've been i've been uh, i'm happy to have you here i like and like what, what were you saying about connotation the denotation so i used to teach um english composition and uh, one of the things we did was a extended definition essay um, and I would have to teach them the difference between connotation and denotation. Denotation means the actual dictionary definition. Connotation is societal and personal understandings of the word. Yeah. So, uh, for example, the idea that greed is inherently bad, that's more connotative than it is denotative. And I think it's really important to make those distinctions. And I don't think a lot of people do that they understand like conceptually that they are separate things uh mm -hmm. which is one yeah, of the I'm, points of having composition students write an extended definition I'm essay very, is to i'm very to, happy that i'm very happy that you were able to define this with the proper words that i did not know <laughs> <laughs> yep well and alex i mean uh this also means that connotation is uh a partial function of the culture and the philosophy that's part of that culture, um, which is why you could argue it's why culture matters in some ways where it's like, okay, well, if this is, if this now takes on a bad connotation that will affect people's behavior and relationship to it, um, yeah. regardless like, of what's, what it actually is. Yeah. I mean, it will, will connotation can evolve into denotation. It can. I just find it kind of annoying when they're willing to make it evolve into the actual opposite meaning or um, mm. they force it. That's not really, that's not really a societal thing. That's a yeah. more like we want, we want a specific uh, definition so that the things we say um, like trick people into thinking certain things. And I'm, I'm, I feel like we're seeing a lot of that right now which is why a lot of people are like, keep your old dictionaries and everything. And I'm totally yeah. cool with the idea of language evolving. Like I've never, like I even taught about language evolvement in composition. Um, yeah. But I, there's a difference. There's definitely yeah, like, a difference. <laughs> yeah. Isn't it like yeah. simply that like, correct me if I'm wrong. Is it not that just simply that like the connotation once becomes, once it becomes like prevalent enough becomes the denotation it's not that it does it no there's no i mean it's not like it just depends on like, it, whenever it's become prevalent enough that like some like you know that like they're the agencies that like run dictionaries are like well shit well, i guess we have to change this it depends whether they're reflecting what's truly going on or whether they're being activists so an example i'll give you is um the word inflation this i was talking about this the other day the word inflation monetarily uh, original the old dictionary on my shelf behind me has this right it the, the word inflation only meant expansion of the money supply that's all it meant you expand the money supply you inflate the money supply like a balloon the end now of course um what what's a cause of that well prices go up eventually when you inflate the money supply and so um that became uh that became well inflation meant prices rising due to monetary increase and now people talk about inflation i've heard most recently just as prices rising which is of course 
prices can rise for lots of reasons has nothing to do with inflation but i think that i i think that that was a usurpation of the language specifically by um keynesians who wanted to print money so like and they wanted the word inflation not to relate to what they're doing which was inflating like oh we're gonna print a lot of money but i don't know if inflation will happen right um so like that's that's how those words change yeah that's a yeah, that's a good example. Yeah, right. I mean, like, but isn't it still functionally that, like, wait, the, the definition of inflation? What would it be? Like, I want to now look up what currently definition of inflation is. Like, if I just Google, it de- usually if you inflation. look it up now, you should see some kind of thing that relates to prices rising due to increased money. That's usually, yeah, although it's inflation. starting to change to just mean increased prices. But A general increase in prices and fall in the purchasing value of money. So it's being even more generalized. Oh, yeah. So it doesn't even increase. relate to the money supply anymore. Yeah. Right? I it's mean, completely detached. it does, though, right? I mean, like, because well, the things that usually cause that are the money supply, right? Sure, it can, but other things can cause. Right. I mean, yeah, uh, yeah. What am I saying? Not usually, yeah. of course. In this, like, in that situation, like, if the money supply is adjusted, inflation happens. Right. But what this new definition allows them to do is print money and say, well, it's not inflation yet the inflation is this thing that's disconnected that happens later it's just when prices rise okay yeah rise. because there's because, because demand goes yeah. goes up and and supply goes down like who knows it's a rise of prices it's a separate thing so because inflation it was had speaking of connotation inflation had negative connotations so it's yeah. like well we don't want the negative connotation when we run the printing press uh that yeah, can happen a, later when something else happens <laughs> yeah that's really interesting actually i think about it. Like, uh, Silverlock says it could get your ducks in a row, uh, make you get your ducks in a row and work harder for the car. He's talking about covet, uh, the feeling of covetousness. It could, right? It could. Right. And that's my point is that feelings themselves are uh, really just motivations. All right. Well, it- when people were, I do want to, I, I popped on because I kind of wanted to ask you a question, Carter, because people were talking oh, okay. about psychology and everything. Yes. And I, it's a very broad, um, like, study. And there are some psychologists that do more, like, brain imaging and, like, look at, you know, chemical mm-hmm. balances and stuff like that to, to try to work out what's going on with the body in relation to the mind and behavior. And mm-hmm. what do you think about like that form of psychology versus a lot of the stuff that is just like, let's talk about your family crap. (laughs) Well, um, conceptually, I like the idea. I certainly, so I, if I was, if I was a science fiction writer, right, I would imagine that psychology in the future would be um, really just a specialization in neuroscience, right? Like, Here's how the brain works, and here's how it affects behavior, and this is this is what we know, right? Um, the problem with so so I am I am biased towards an attractive, like I'm attracted to fMRIs and that like I'm I'm attracted to that field. However, uh, we've recently learned that fMRIs are basically bullcrap. Almost most fMRI studies are bunk. Um, and there's like a huge problem. Go, go read about the huge problems with fMRI studies. So it, like my bubble was burst a little bit when I was excited about fMRI stuff and I was like, oh, they're actually kind of crap. So I look, 
it goes back to what I said about psychology before, which is like, I think we're kind of like so early in psychology that we're making a lot of missteps. And because we do not have um, a culture of science, the rigor of the scientific method in the field of psychology, uh, which we don't mostly some, some, some do, but in, in general, we don't, uh, we're not going to make a lot of progress until, until they adopt that. And we don't seem to be going in the right direction there because scientific, the scientific rigor of everything seems to be falling apart. So, uh, but if we, I, if, I, we yeah. if we go back on track, scientific rigor wise, would you want people to keep pursuing that line of, you know, psychological study of actually looking at the brain? Yeah. Right. Would I mean, totally. I would want to, I would want to, I would want to study. Um, yeah. How the brain reacts to different things, different chemical reactions. Like, absolutely. And I, and I think that's, I think couch psychology and like all that kind of, like that is a, it's using the tool we have, not the tool we need. <laughs> like, well, we can yeah, sit yeah. down and talk to someone. So let's do that. Like, uh, I mean, it works. If now. we can follow, <laughs> like, if we can actually follow neural pathways and see how chemicals interact and how people react to things, like, we should do that because that's better. I have to imagine you are very excited about people like studying the connectome and mapping that out. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't, it's very, that's also very nascent, though, is my understanding, right? What was that? I apologize. That's very nascent, is my understanding. There's not a lot of progress there yet. I don't actually know what the heck was up with that anymore. I haven't checked in quite a while. Like from my understanding, like years ago, they enlisted like basically like the help of other people's like computer processing power, and it was oh. like uh, it was an interesting method. Like I think they had you like play a game or something, and like somehow that was using some of your processing power and also through like you making decisions for the game was also helping their research study somehow interesting so it was an interesting thing it was like it was many years ago i don't remember what the heck it was but i should i could look it up but no uh -oh. i i do find the whole thing fascinating and i, I find that uh like if i had uh multiple lives to go play with i like i could totally see being a neurologist in one of one of my like okay like that's a field that i would just want to go do um in fact my wife and i the other day even had a conversation about she she randomly said, I think I would want to like if maybe I'll go get a degree in psychology someday just for fun. And I was like, I don't I was just thinking like something similar. I was thinking neurology, but like just for yeah, fun. Like, yeah. I, I I'll just go it. to I'll just go to college for a couple of years just for fun. <laughs> she was like having this uh, moment of I'm going to make it big and then have free time. And so why not gotcha. go get a PhD kind of thing? Um I think <clears throat> I think then the baby cried and reality yeah. set in and we moved on. <laughs> and you were like, oh, well, back to reality. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, Alex, does that answer your question? I mean, do you have, does that answer your question about that or? No, it does. I, I was just what curious do you think about, about it? your, like, I'm, I think we should pursue it. I think it's a lot better than going behavior is based on psychology because mm -hmm. I've literally seen neurologists say that. And go, there's no point looking at the brain because you have behavioral issues. And I'm like, it, it feels very blank slate-ish sort of um, kind of attitude to have. Especially it's not invented here attitude. 
Yeah. It's what <laughs> like, it is. Like, what? I don't like that because I like, <laughs> yeah, I like no transmitters. So everything else sucks. Like, all right. That's nice. Yeah. Well, because they're like, if you don't have like a twit, a muscle twitch or something, or like half your face isn't sloped, then I don't think you have a neurology, neurology problem. And I'm like, what? Like, you don't think the behavior of a human being is centered in their brain? Like, yeah. you work on the brain. And I, yeah. it kind of like, it shocked me how many people think that way. So it kind of, like, I hope they like force, like as much as it's not great right now, I think it's worth pursuing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I kind of, the thing that excites me is figuring out if we could home in on that moment where you have to make the choice to evade or not, like an uncomfortable thought comes in and you can, you can look the other way or like do the work to think more about it. Like that's the moment that I'm actually most interested in functionally. And like, how do you, how do you capture that and understand the essence of it? Because that's the essence of, I think, massive problems in culture. The thing that I, uh, that I just randomly, uh, when I wonder now is like, have you guys, have you guys, uh, looked into transcranial magnetic stimulation much? Because they've done things about that treating treating certain mental disorders, and I wonder how uh-huh. much that really is interested interesting to you guys. Because it's a very similar kind of thing of mess, messing with the physical chemistry of the brain instead of the instead of like, like the physical like uh, electrochemistry instead of the what do you call it instead of the chemical chemistry. You know what I mean? And, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. My brain's terrible. Jesus Christ. You need some therapy, some electric. Uh... Shock therapy? No, something. Um, yeah, just go, so let's do that real quick. <laughs> I is it related to? Um, is it like the reverse process of of how you can you know steer something by thinking left and right? Well, how they have the they put the apparatus on you and they can kind of detect. So it's kind of like yeah. the the reverse. Hey, I believe so. It's basically just like it, it's basically using like electromagnetic waves to like penetrate your skull in some form. And I don't I don't exactly understand exactly how it works. But I know that it's literally just like there's some form of like it's basically just a big block that they put on your head and aim it where they need to aim it, and then it's shooting huh. electromagnetic magnetic waves where it needs to be shot. I don't understand exactly the the science behind why that functions, but I know that supposedly there were usages of it for depression, which I thought you might be interested in knowing about. I... Yeah, that's interesting. I have looked into a lot of the more extreme treatments for psychological psychological disorders, such as depression and, and anxiety, um, schizophrenia, those kinds of things. And um, the stuff that is usually permanent, they believe is permanent. Um, because some people have uh, depressive mood disorders that are lifelong and all other forms of treatment haven't worked. So they, they then they go to the extreme treatments. And one the three most extreme treatments they consider are um, the electromagnetic therapy that you mentioned, actual electroshock, and um, and the final one is ketamine therapy. Yeah, that's uh, one that okay. I was also going to talk about. Is like uh, I know that they talk about doing that for like PTSD and mm-hmm. uh, a few other things. The Can't thing is, though, thing is, is 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 that long term, I've not seen any studies show that they have permanent like effect that it's it's another one of those things that's a stopgap treatment unfortunately uh for all three of those but they're more they're more uh successful at 
uh, staving off symptoms for a longer period of time. It's just not like long. It's not a cure. Huh. It's fascinating, though. I think we have someone else here. Hey, Carter. Exofathom. How's it going? Hey, hi, welcome. How you doing? Thank you. Thank you. Big fan of your show. Uh, glad to oh, thanks, uh, jump on with you. Yeah. How's everybody? Welcome. Thank you. Welcome here. Awesome. Do you have stuff you want to talk about? Do you got you got a topic that's burning? Oh, well, um, I don't want to derail too much because I just heard about ketamine therapy. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I find that really fascinating. And in, in fact, my wife just uh, she went through a pretty bad um, knee break about a year ago. And it was bent so bad that they had to put her under ketamine in order to straighten the leg. Wow. And that's been one of the things that uh, really has sort of expanded her mind, <laughs> for lack of a better word. Um, it, it was kind of scary for me because I was in the room and, you know, they put her under and then she stopped breathing. And then they started to panic a little bit. And uh, they recommended that I help play music and kind of set the mood for her. Um, but yeah, when she came, came out of that, she was completely changed, completely changed. Like, a like sort personality of a, wise, not, not necessarily personality, but perspective, I would say, huh. um, as far as feeling more connectivity, feeling a little bit closer to, I guess, maybe what you would call a divine source or something like that. Um, she had a, like a dramatically spiritual experience. Uh, through that. And it was, you know, I, you know, it looked scary to me again, you know, like she, she kind of went into a comatose state. And then uh, when she came out of it, she was, you know, she was talking about her experience, seeing dead relatives, um, making amends with them, uh, going through this life altering experience. And uh, yeah, it's been, it's been one of those things where it's, it's stuck with her and it's been about a year now. And it's still something that kind of elicits a feeling of, wholeness to her i was gonna ask if it lasted it sounds like it, it has so far yeah yeah at least it's been about 11 months so far yeah i hear people say tell st similar stories about ayahuasca mm -hmm. use um so uh it, like definitely change like changing their perspective and also for trauma i've heard uh there's there's a push now i think to have um mdma and and or mushrooms be, be used for trauma yeah um yeah. i think so there's a lot of doing psilocybin right now yeah yep yeah so i don't know i'm i've uh i'm not averse to drugs recreationally if i'm pretty sure that they're not going to have permanent effects um and actually mdma is a pretty dangerous one because if you take it um it it, it if you take it too often, it can permanently reduce your ability to feel happiness. Like there's some serious, yeah. there's some dangerous, dangerous stuff out there that I think recreational that people don't understand. But, um, but it, the, the uses that you're talking about where it's like, or, or the ayahuasca use, I've not like, those always scare the hell out of me. Cause it's like, okay, yeah. well that sounds like, Maybe it could fix something, but maybe it could break something. And if it's permanent, it's very scary to me. <laughs> it seems like a, a big crapshoot, too, because, you know, I, she was lucky to have a decent experience. I can only imagine what it would be like if you didn't have a good experience. And, um, yep. yeah, I, I guess that's probably why the doctors, by the time they got her back breathing, because she stopped breathing for a second, um, they were like, yeah, you should put some music on. You should try to, you know, they dimmed the lights. They gave her like a good 15 minute trip. 
And uh, but yeah, so it was it was yeah, it was very eye opening because you could only imagine if somebody was in a bad space and then had a negative experience on that. It would feel to me that that would be equally as impactful, but I'm not sure. Yeah, I can imagine it would be. Why did they not use general anesthesia? What was their like? Uh, We're gonna try oh, K. It was a it was in an emergency room. So when they got here, um, she was very you know she handled it very well, but it was broken in fi five places. And uh, when when the EMTs got here, they gave her two shots of fentanyl. But the problem with fentanyl is it only lasts 10 minutes. So they had to give her like multiple shots of fentanyl while in the ambulance. And then they gave her some at the emergency room. And her her knee was bent in such a way that they couldn't even like open the brace to inspect it because she was in such pain. So uh, I guess their only uh, opportunity or, or option was to do the ketamine drip and just huh. sublate the leg while she was under. Wow. Yeah. That's pretty scary. I'm glad she's sounds like she's okay. She's better now. Yeah, definitely. But Good. it is interesting how those chemicals, if done in this sort of like medical uh, respect, can yield uh, interesting results. She's also Native American, too. So she has her experience with uh, uh, psychedelics like peyote and stuff like that. So right. um, but it's it's kind of it's kind of weird how science is now using that almost like medicinal shamanism through these molecules to uh, address psychological uh, issues. I mean, I got a theory about that. I don't know what you think about it, but, um, and, and I think this is the same for many medicines, um, non-Western medicines. I think my theory goes like this. Ancient cultures maybe didn't have any scientific method, maybe had no idea what they were doing. Right. But stumbled stumbled across some sort of heuristic stuff like, hey, this seems to help when we do this sometimes, mm -hmm. and maybe developed mystical beliefs about why it helps. May, like you know, that my wife is Chinese, so there's a lot of like, and, and her mom is living with us at the moment, right? So there's kind of like this, like, no, that's a hot food, and that's a cold food, and you need to just like, oh, I don't, you're just making crap up, right? Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but. Uh, my my theory is that a lot of that kind of developed just heuristically as something that sort of worked and they weren't sure why and they made up stories about it. And um, while I am a huge fan of the scientific method, clearly, and I think it's superior and I like I'm not I'm not saying ditch your Western medicine and go, uh, you know, Chinese herbal medicine. I do think there's something worth studying there, which is going into these different cultures, looking at the stuff and figuring out, OK, what is going on here? Is it is it just a placebo effect? Is there something real that's happening? If there is something real that's happening, why is it happening? And what's the mechanism behind it? I think those are fascinating questions. And I think we're finally at a point of enough confidence in Western medicine that we're starting to look at some of that. But there was a while where we just wouldn't look at it. I think that's something a great point about that exact yeah. topic. It's like we actually ha I know something specifically exactly like that topic. It was a very strange reason that I had to even look into it. But uh I was I had this very strange plan to try to stay up as long as I can for a period of time, just for entertainment for something. It was a it was a it was a silly thing that I was gonna do for entertainment. That sounds horrible, hours. but okay. <laughs> but it was gonna be literally trying to stay up as long as I can. But then I looked into like the the if the safety level of that, like mm. at what point it would actually be dangerous. Right. So like about three days in, apparently you get neuroinflammation, and uh, 
yeah, and oxidative stress depending on the person like the oxidative stress seems to be like not uh, not every person gets it apparently from what i was reading but like the the actual like treatment came from i believe a chinese medicine thing because they was using ginseng hmm. if you eat ginseng literally a studied thing they read the study on it because i was just like what the fuck it can't just be ginseng are you kidding me and it was just like it was like 100 milligrams per kilogram of ginseng or something like that like it was like a sizable amount of ginseng it was like a lot yeah they just like eat a bunch of ginseng and then it was just like <laughs> apparently it'll knock down the neuroinflammation specifically from the for specifically from sleep deprivation no reason i don't know exactly why but I because the, the study didn't. Really so how long can you go for on ginseng? You just know that it was the case, and like when like hey like here's the study why this many people we tried it on this it worked every time <laughs> like not every time but you know what I mean <laughs> like yeah I'm always like, fascinated about the I'm always fascinated about the origins of certain things like I believe coffee it was uh, shepherds in Africa noticing that their goats were acting more ener energetic after eating the coffee bean. I think that that's the origination story. So I kind of okay. like that. Yeah, I kind of like that, um, you know, the ob ob observing of nature to sort of glean answers about that stuff, too. Well, the yeah. thing is, though, is that most pharmacy comes from nature. We don't we don't like make we didn't make it up like St. John's right. Ward <laughs> is what they made into like antidepressants. So it's like we we still do that. It's just so many steps removed. Mm. And um, I know a lot of people say that they think it's like less natural or whatever, but um, I don't, I, I think it just means that it's more standardized. Like you don't know if you eat St. John's wort, how much of the chemical that makes you less depressed you're actually getting versus an antidepressant pill. You know that the right. dose is the same every time. And that's the difference. But we still, I mean, nature is where we get all our pharmacy. Like, we don't, it's not magic. Right. Yeah. Aspirin is like came from one, anywhere right? else. And now we, like, we went off to another yeah. planet. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, <laughs> and even, even synthetics are often like a synthetic attempt to recreate something that they saw in nature first, right? I, I have to apologize, but I, I would like to go. I have to just say, uh, I've been, I loved being here. But I have to head out now. It's been wonderful speaking to you. Uh, well, thanks for coming. Forward to speaking to you in the future. All right. Well, thanks for coming, man. Yeah. Motown. I hey. I got your I got your uh, <laughs> your Discord stuff. I got your Discord question listed uh, listed here, but I won't I won't ask it uh, or I won't talk about it, and I'll just let you talk about it if you want to talk about it. Yeah, uh, I appreciate that. Uh, <laughs> that's cool, man. Um, all right, I have a lot of questions. <laughs> um, let's see, what would be the... Uh, okay. Um, I have, let's say, two main points that, that, make me, that I'm very, very curious about. Uh, one would be uh, you. You mentioned um, two things um, are destroying, uh, let's say, the Western uh, capitalistic uh, economic structure. Um, 
uh, socialists say that it's capitalism itself. You say that it is the fact that there is central banking and um, the government's too big, um, which, uh, you know, to me sound, uh, you know, I mean, it sounds plausible at the very least. Um, now, my, my, my main question is, is that, are those the only thing that would be destroying um, capitalism with, with, you know, um, because the problem with capitalism now, let's say, is you have these huge companies like BlackRock, Vanguard, uh, you have the World Economic Forum, and you see like Boeing and Airbus on their list of people, like everybody's, you know, mm -hmm. um, part of it. Um, so basically what you have are essentially it, uh, crony, almost crony capitalism, which is pretty much Marx's, um, uh, you know, Marx's criticism of capitalism. So uh, what I, my question is, yeah, all these people suck. Um, now, is it, is there something within capitalism itself, aside from the, the, uh, I mean, I don't even know how to say it separate from how Marx said it, but is there a way to, is there something in capitalism inherent to, uh, its own destruction, um, and not just, uh, central banking slash, uh, big government, which, uh, you correctly point out, um, you, you know, are, are sort of like, uh, I don't know, trying to go on a diet, but you have a cheat, yeah, you, you cheat every night. Like, it, it's not how it works, right? So, like, it'll break, right? It'll break the system. So, um, that, okay, yes. let me, let me start by saying, uh, when I say central banking and failure to limit government are causes, I mean proximal causes. And one of the themes of this show and most of what I talk about is that underlying everything is philosophy and psychology because they're related because uh, I've talked about the dance between the two. Right. So like they're underneath everything. So um, and I would argue that central banking and the failure to limit government are results of bad philosophy. So I think they're probably the biggest proximal causes of where we are today. If you want to look at like why the system is falling apart. Um, but you know, uh, the central banking is the reason I think that's probably the biggest proximal cause is central banking is what allows government to expand. Right. Um, and expansion means regulatory capture. Regulatory capture means power, power equals cronyism. Like that's how you get there. So um, I but but underneath all that, and I've said this before a bunch of times, I think um, this is why I care more about philosophy. And every time I say philosophy, just assume I mean psychology as well, because they, they kind of go hand in hand. So this is why I care more about philosophy, because at the end of the day, even though it's far off, right, even though steering a culture philosophically takes generations and generations even though it's a long, long game, fundamentally, that's all that matters. If you have a, if like, if you, if everyone in the Soviet Union, except for the Communist Party and a few generals, were all rugged individualists who believed in individualism, Stalin would be dead. 
Like it would have happened. Like it'd be over. You can't sustain. You can't sustain that kind of a system in a culture that is that really sees through it. That's like, nope. Our philosophy is screwed on straight. Our psychology is screwed on straight. We know. And the flip side is, you could develop. And and this is where I argue with a lot of libertarians. And this is actually one of the reasons I. Uh, slipped away from minarchists into anarchists. And it's not that I, um, my, my ad, I don't actually advocate for anarchy. I'm an anarchist by default. And what I mean by that is when I think about what are some ways to write down some rules that will force people to obey those rules 10 generations from now, I come up with a goose egg. It's like, oh, actually, there's no way to write a constitution or anything like you can't do it. You can't limit government. The only thing that can do it is a you culture and, and a culture that self-sustains individualism. And that means a culture that understands the philosophy underneath it. And, and that is psychologically healthy enough to call out psychological dysfunction and, and understand how to raise our kids. I don't think we're quite there, but like, in, even if, if we could, like, I don't think we quite get it. So once you have that, I actually don't think the system of government matters because you will end up going smaller and smaller and smaller. And I think anarchism is inevitable if we, if we get healthier and healthier and healthier over time as, as a culture, anarchism is inevitable because we won't need – eventually we'll be like, well, we don't really need this police because like, you know, we can that, police ourselves. We don't, we don't mean, need this. That sounds like, that sounds like Marx, <laughs> you know? Eventually, you'll get to communism because the socialists will realize they don't need the government anymore. Well, the and difference. So, I, I would say it is like Marx in one sense, in that it is a historical prediction. However, I'm going to put a caveat on my prediction. It's that's only if we figure out how to build a perpetual. So, my prediction is if we could build a perpetual motion device of culture and philosophy that was healthy, then that would happen. I don't know if we can do that. So I don't know if that's going to happen. Um, yeah. And just to be clear, Marx wasn't correct about capitalism. Like if no, you look at what not. happened in the U.S. Hmm? Of course not. Yeah. No, but I mean, even his predictions, right? Like we are not suffering from having filled, having like walked in the trail that Marx laid out for us. What we're suffering from is Marxists, Marxist disciples, like his disciples in academia recognized it didn't work like he said that the middle class didn't revolt <laughs> they actually kind of liked this capitalism thing and their standard of living went up and they didn't want to rise up and overthrow the bourgeois and so when and you, ha you had a petite bourgeois like form and that was that was that not at all what he expected and so the reason that we have capitalism destroying itself now is because disciples of Marx were like, well, how do we destroy it another way? It's got to be destroyed. How do we get them to revolt? What do we do? And you, and that's when you end up with like, and this, you know, in American academic institutions, the, the, the bad philosophy that enables this has been around for centuries. Um, and then you had the critical theorists come along and be like, well, let's attack epistemology also, because maybe that'll help. Um, if this is all politically driven and, and then you had real existential threats like the Soviet Union, like you've seen your Besmanov, I'm sure like, like, Hey, ideological subversion is a thing. We need to go cause the problems to destroy the society because it doesn't want to destroy itself. And I think you didn't need the Soviet Union to do that. I think it accelerated it. I think 
the infiltration of our academic institutions with really shitty philosophy would have eventually led here anyway. I think we just got here earlier because we had active political opponents trying to create chaos. And does that, yeah. does that not satisfy you as an answer or are you? You're, it like, doesn't satisfy me. Uh, okay. And the reason it doesn't satisfy me is because, God, I'm terrible at putting my thoughts together. The reason it doesn't satisfy me is because, um, okay, let's just say what you just said, right? Like the Soviet Union, sorry, that Marx was wrong about communism be, or capitalism because uh, all the capitalist uh, countries remain capitalist. And the communist countries were, as Trump would call them, uh, crap hole countries. And, uh, right? And they all, and those are the ones that became communist, right? Um, so, uh, now, I would argue that the best example of a small government country would be America, um, at least at its founding. But, mm -hmm. you know, if you had predicted, let's say, that it would go towards anarchy because the founding fathers were, were so brilliant, which they were, um, then I would say, well, you were wrong because the government's just gotten bigger and bigger um, the, more, right. the longer it's... Um, the longer it's been in existence, which would prove uh, or would disprove. Now, you're not a historicist like Marx was, right? So, right. so, so Marx so is there is a difference will happen there. inevitably. And I'm yeah. saying, I don't know what will happen, but if we want this thing to happen that I want, which is libertarianism, minarchism, end game, voluntary society, well, we got to get our shit together in these other fields because they drive everything. That's kind of what I'm saying. Marx was not saying we have to get our shit together. He was just saying, I understand how it all works, and this will inevitably happen. I'm not saying that at all. I know you're not. And I know you're okay. saying if, if people uh, would just, uh, you know, um, hold by the individualist uh, enlightenment, uh, classically liberal, I don't know if that's the right word, but uh, philosophy, um, uh, you know, we would eventually reach this, uh, uh, this, this state of uh, anarchy, maybe. Um, well, let, we can anarchy is a, a word people don't like. Let's just say what would reach the the founding utopia kind of idea of would we reach like a, uh, a libertarian kind of thing? Would reach volunteerism? Would reach this place where we didn't violate each other's rights all the time? Yeah, you, you would, uh, it would be. God, everything comes back to Marxist terms. It would be a community based <laughs> sort of thing. Like you'd have. You'd have one, you know, Jordan Pearson got in trouble for saying uh, socially enforced monogamy or something like that, or enforced monogamy. So, like, all your rules would be socially enforced instead of yes, and so I, I think, yeah, I don't think, I don't think Jordan Peterson's necessarily correct about the necessity of monogamy for this particular problem that we're trying to solve. But I do think you cannot have. So here's the issue. If you I wasn't arguing enforce, for his case for monogamy. No, no, I'm just, just, okay, but yeah. if you if you don't enforce, um, and let's just let's just say that we could understand what positive, thriving human behavior looked like. Let's we could say like it means don't inject heroin into your arm and do this and like whatever. Let's let's say we could let's say we could figure out whether you were behaving in your best self interest and, and and in the in the best long term interest of yourself and like and 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 in a moral way. If we could figure all that out, um. If we're not willing to enforce it voluntarily through things like ostracism, like without using force, 
it will not like your only other option is to turn to a government to enforce it. And once you do that, you've opened up Pandora's box because governments don't stay small, right? So they never will. Um, so and 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 once you've turned to a government, you've kind of undermined your entire the entire point of what you're trying to do. So I like I do think you could never have a voluntary society without ostracism, without social enforcement of things. Like if someone misbehaves. They need to be socially. Uh, they need to be social consequences. I'm not sure what they are. It doesn't mean there could be no forgiveness mechanism, but there does need to be voluntary uh, borders put around behavior. And and what we've done is lifted all guardrails for any behavior, and and then said, well, the government will take care of us, <laughs> right? Um, and that's why we're kind of chaotic right now because we're literally lifting any kind of guardrail for any behavior like i mean it seems like we're about to lift you can feel it culturally we're about to lift the guardrail for pedophilia that's like the most horrific thing i can imagine lifting the guardrail from and you can see the left like tapping on yeah. the guardrail like hey this should be removed even in uh even in prisons amongst the worst people pedophiles are like the lowest rank of right a prisoner like the prison the you know they know they know but our elites don't. So you don't have to argue or um, convince me of the problems of uh, today's society. Um, uh, I'm just really trying to understand, um, really trying to understand the capitalist, not even the capitalist thing. Like I understand it. I understand why it works. I just don't, I don't get how to keep it from deteriorating. Like everything Again, this is Peterson, but everything goes towards a hierarchy. Like that's how humans, um, you know, humans form groups, and then right. those groups form larger groups. Like everything tends towards a hierarchy, um, which is the opposite of non-human stuff, which tend toward chaos. So that's kind of funny. But um, uh, but uh, yeah, that's the uh, you know. So how are you going to keep anarchy going? Um, when eventually you're going to get some sort of hierarchy that's probably going to keep growing. So hierarchy hierarchy doesn't mean government, right? Like there's nothing wrong with hierarchy. We need hierarchy. Um, even in a completely voluntary society, there would be hierarchy. There would be the guy who's the expert on nootropics or neuroscience or whatever. And like institutions who are really good at it. And the guys, you know, and like... There would be the ketamine expert or whatever. There would be people who are experts at various things and there would be a hierarchy and there would be apprenticeships and there would be like, there would be seals of approval that were privately, you know, managed and like, okay, like that's, I want a hierarchy, right? I don't, I want to, if I go to a heart surgeon, I want to know he's at the top of a heart surgeon hierarchy based on competence. That's what I want, right? Like, I don't yeah. want to be like, give me a random heart surgeon, like, or a guy who claims to be a heart surgeon, like that. So hierarchy is not incompatible with anarchy or voluntarism i'll just just call it voluntarism because it sounds better to people right but like hierarchy is not incompatible what's what makes a government a government isn't hierarchy it's the monopoly on the use of force um like that's what makes it a government um and so if you armed microsoft if you said to microsoft here's a bunch of ar-15s shoot people that you don't like have some rules and uh, you're in charge, like Microsoft would become a government. Like that's what that is. 
right? Like the the reason that that government is a problem isn't that there's a hierarchy. It's that it's a hierarchy of usually it's a hierarchy of uh, corruption, incompetence, and power lust, <laughs> right? Like that's yeah, the hierarchy but, you get. With but okay, so. Um, uh, like I don't know if we're actually going to get to the meat of this uh, in the in uh, the short term. Uh, I don't want to monopolize. Um, but um, well, let's try. Let's let's try. Let's yeah. I mean, we could try. Uh, you just you just tell me when like we're doing a hard stop. Um, I just want to get to the heart of your. You seem to have some angst about like I want to save capitalism, and I'm saying you can't without philosophy and psychology, and you seem unsatisfied I, with that. Like I'm no, not, no, I don't I, have I, a better answer. I agree with you on. I agree with you on all this, right? But there's a number of problems. One is a tendency towards a hierarchy, and I don't mean the hierarchy. The, obviously, hierarchy doesn't mean go, uh, government all the time, but you do need some form of governance. Um, like, uh, if you saw the movie Lincoln from like ten years ago or whatever, Daniel Day Lewis. Oh, I didn't. Sorry. Oh, it was great. Good movie. Uh, you should see it. Um, but uh, if you saw the movie, there's one part in the movie that was so hilarious because um, it was uh, during the Civil War or something, and some guy had to tell Lincoln something, and he just runs like down Pennsylvania Avenue, just runs into the White House. It's like is like President Lincoln, like no social security, nothing. The guy just runs in to find you know Abraham Lincoln. Now, I mean, forget the corruptness of Biden. Let's say, uh, you know, let's say during the, uh, the Clinton Bush years, right? Um, would um, you would have had uh, you you wouldn't have been able to do that? The, the guy would have been, you know, um, hauled away. Or shot. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so already there, you have over time, you have the distancing of the government by the people of the people for the people you have it distancing from the people in in true not even corruption it's more bureauc bureaucratic creep right but it's because there's a monopoly on force like you don't have that like and and you do and have it's also the size it's also the size too, right? the size of the country that when it gets too big you can't have that you know thing and when you're saying like force, let's say, right, you need a military purely for foreign foreign policy, right? You need a military. But for defense. what you're saying defense. So what you're saying, in your in your view, there would be a bunch of militias loosely working together. I don't know what there would be. I mean, I don't have to know the supply chain for the iPhone to know that it gets made pretty cheaply and I can buy it. Like, it's very complex. A bunch of people voluntarily work together because there's demand for it. If if someone had proposals for mutual self-defense and I thought they were good and we lived in a voluntary society, I don't want to get blown up by North Korea or Russia, so I would contribute. Uh, in fact, people with more to lose would probably contribute more. Um, so it's somewhat of a progressive tax in that sense. Like, it's not a tax because they're not forced to, but... You know, maybe it would end up being we all kind of agree that there's this one organization, but we have to have some oversight to them because, you know, we don't want them to go too far and like and, you know, and whatever. But but they don't have 
they don't have a monopoly. If I wanted to start my own company and compete with them for doing that, like, okay, maybe I could do that. Maybe no one would fund me. No one would trust me because they're happy with what's going on. Like, I don't know. Um, and I, and when I think about end games like that, I don't mean to be flippant, but I actually don't care. Um, and, and the reason I don't care is to me, what matters is the goal of, of preserving individual rights. And if we have the culture in the, and that's, that's, that moves in that direction and can self-sustain in that direction. And what I mean by that is continuing to raise children that <laughs> act that way and reinforce those values and get more, like get better at individual rights, not worse. Like if, if that's the culture that we build, I think we'll end up with anarchy slash volunteerism. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe we'll get stuck at some form of libertarianism and that's what everyone will be happy with. Like, I don't know. I don't care. That's not going to happen in my lifetime. What I care about is individual sovereignty. And I happen to think probably if we had a society that got to a very limited government, they would start realizing that they could shed the gov like they could shed more than people right now feel comfortable shedding. And they would realize, oh, actually, we can do this better on our own. Actually, we can do this better on our own. And before I went from libertarian slash minarchists to anarchist, I went through a phase of voluntary government, which I think maybe we would go through too, where it's like, okay, uh, there is a monopoly on who can be the government, but they don't have any money unless people contribute and they, they can voluntarily contribute and only to the things they want. It's like, okay, well, that's, that's a lot of power that you have as, as, as a private citizen. Now that could be dangerous for other reasons, right? Because, you know, someone rich could come along and use their power to do something else. So you still need that culture of individualism. Um, that's why there's no real, without that foundation, you can't build anything. And so I, that's why I kind of don't, I don't even get into arguments with libertarians about whether like this form of government or that form of government, like, I don't care. What I yeah. care about is my grandkids being and my, and their kid grandkids being immersed in a culture where everyone wants individual rights to be protected. And that's what they're striving to figure out how to do. And, I don't have to lay it out for them. Just like I don't have to explain 20 years before an iPhone is invented how an iPhone will work. I don't have to explain how a voluntary society will work. I don't know. But I know it will work. And there's a lot of smart people that will, if they've got the philosophical direction set correctly, they'll figure out a way to make something work there. Right? Does that? I, I know that sounds flippant, but um, I really don't think it is. It's, I don't intend for it to be flippant. No, I know. I know. Um, I think... Um, so, I, 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 the, my other thing would be, um, the, the bureaucrat, the, you know, I said one thing would be like the, the bureaucratic thing, but the other thing that I think would knock it all down are the, uh, the bad actors, the power hungry, the psychopaths, whatever, uh, who, uh, you know, will uh, infest the um, infest the system. Let's say there's a. You said you would support a government that fully supported individual individualism, right? Um, sure. You mean like I would voluntarily pay if they were like, we're going to protect you from China invading, and basically that's all we're going to do. We'll have we'll yeah. murder laws and whatever. And, yeah. Okay. Yeah, and maybe make you stand for the national. I'm just kidding. Um, but, uh, um, yeah, the, uh, 
right? So you're saying, like you're you're saying, uh, everybody has to, you know, every, the culture has to be individualism, right? Um, yeah, and, and there's an aspect of it that it, it sounds like I'm not articulating. Mm -hmm. You need to. It has to be a culture of policing that. So when a bad actor comes along trying to do stuff, it has to be a culture of everyone saying, F you, bad actor. We see it. We see the signs. We know what you're doing. And we won't tolerate it. We have to be like, we are not going to tolerate you in our society. In, right? In real life, people, even if a society that supports um, individualism, people are not, most people are going to be I don't like to use this term because it sounds disrespectful, but they're going to be NPCs. They're going to be, this yep. is our culture and whatever. And, and you could have some bad actor come and say, free speech should not include harmful speech or whatever they say, right? And and people will be like, yeah, that makes sense. Like, it's not going to, your your definition, not your definition, I'm saying. The, I see what you're saying, yeah. The definition of individualism is not going to remain static. It's going to morph over time, and you sort of have to keep it on the on the path. You know, um, that's the job of the cultures, whatever that means. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, but I mean, you know, it doesn't take much to uh, to destroy that to turn a society upside down. Um, so now, again, you're also saying this isn't a utopia because it's not the end of history. You can uh, destroy it through corruption or, or whatever. So that's what you're saying. You're okay. So I get what you're saying. You're saying we have to keep it free from corruption as best and as long as we can. Well, and, and, and you're struggling with a, a, a topic that I've struggled with, but I don't talk about much because it sounds pretty horrible, but I'll say it anyway. Okay. Uh, it's, it's called dangerous thoughts. So whatever, uh, uh, look, true thoughts are, are terrible, right? So, yeah, well, look, this is this is a top. It, this is a tough one. Um, I do think your analogy. I th do think your your analysis that most people are NPCs is correct. Uh, I think we have gone from a normies. I like the term normies better than sure. NPCs. I, I yeah. mean, I, let's we can be we can be more disrespectful and say they're zombies, but um, <laughs> the, you know, yeah. we've look. We've they're trying. They're trying to live their lives. They're trying to raise their kids like. I was late because I had to put my kid to sleep. Like people don't have time, right? Sure, sure, but but they also have given up um, responsibility for deciding right and wrong and making decisions like that. Like if you if you're going to do that and someone says, "Hey, um, free speech isn't like hate speech isn't free speech," you need to you need to have the wherewithal to be like, "I actually haven't been paying attention, so I'm not going like, to I'm not going to be led by that. I'm not going to buy in." Right? And and the problem is people don't. Right, but you have to be they, disagreeable. They you have to be right. disagreeable. And yeah, so people aren't. Yes, not everyone is. Right. So this is the problem I've been struggling with. So I, I think we went from a a a a bunch of cultures that were based on might makes right. The guy who can win the wars, wins and and controls and and the conquered people are slaves and what like that that was normal, right? Um, and gets to be king or whatever. We but I think that. also I think also there was an element of technological advancement, like the Romans and the Greeks and their math, right? It wasn't just they were stronger; it's also they had better weapons. So well, 
I can there say was an human of might. That. When I say might makes right, I'm I'm saying this in a human perspective, like human might. Human might. Sure. The number one weapon you have is your brain. So if you invent an if you invent a nuke and you're fighting someone with sticks and stones, you win, right? Mm -hmm. Like that's might. Even if you you know just have to press the button. Um. So, like, that was the the society we lived in, and we've switched democracy. Any kind of democracy, um switches the game so that the power is not your ability to um, use force judiciously, like, or effectively, right? Which was in the past, like, using force effectively was your power. Either you were bigger and stronger, or you had better tactics, or you had better weapons, but, like, using force was the skill set, right? We've switched. That skill set has now been become psychological manipulation, the king is the person who understands how to move the zombies and get them to do his bidding. The king is a sorcerer. It's a necromancer. The one who can command the armies of the undead wins, right? That's that's where we are right now. And so if, if you look at like early advertising, they, they were, you know, someone was saying psychology is in real science. It's not, but we have learned things about psychology. Just look at advertisers. They know how to sway people's behavior. And advertising has gotten more and more effective and more and more potent. And that has also bled into politics and every other kind of leadership role. And so getting people to, to do what you want, to do your bidding, has become the superpower. And that's what the elites compete over largely is like when people are running for office, they're competing over who's got that power better, who has the better team that they've assembled to do that and whatever. Money obviously can play a role because – you know, you can make up for lack of cleverness with, you know, sheer bullets or, you know, as <laughs> your ads, right? Like, but that's the game that's being played. And that's not a more moral game than, no. I mean, I guess there's fewer dead bodies in the, in the short term in the wake, but it's not really fundamentally a, a better game in the sense of like, you're not getting a necessarily a better person to rise to the top. So the thing that I struggle with is, and this is the thing that will, you know, Maybe you say, maybe the you say there are fewer dead bodies, but you just refer to people as zombies. So I don't know if there are fewer dead bodies. Yeah, fair, fair. <laughs> uh, but I, the thing that I struggle with is I'm not sure the human race can do what I'm saying needs to be done in all of the human race, right? Like I, I am suspicious that at least a subset of us or all of us need to evolve to be able to handle that culture moving forward. I don't know that we can all do it. Um, I just don't. Right. So I like the idea that all humans can do what I'm asking in terms of like, have a rational philosophy and have your psychology screwed on straight. I'm not convinced that that's possible in the near term at all, which is why I kind of do like the ideas. This isn't exactly the same thing, but it's kind of why I do like ideas of like, let's all move to New Hampshire or this state or whatever. And like we're around like-minded people will be slightly better at it than the rest of the population. Maybe still not great, but that's kind of the first step in, in the creation of humans that can actually psychologically sustain that over course of generations. So that sounds weird and elitist. But I think it's just a fact if you look out at the world, like I'm not and it's not I'm not saying this based on genetics or anything. I'm just saying it like based on like there are people who are or who philosophical do this. Uh, ideology. Right. And there are people who now. don't. 
Yeah. Yeah. I, Go ahead. I was going to say that, like, because you brought up advertising and everything, and it's like the thing is, though, is that if you look at when you look at advertisers when they really talk about things, they're like, we can't catch everybody. Like, we know we can't. There are some people who have it a direct opposite reaction than what we are trying to enact in them. And and so the thing is, and there's always a percentage in the same way that there's always a percentage of people that react badly to a drug that everybody else has no problem with or badly to a food that everybody else can consume. There's no way to 100% that, which is why I struggle with your idea that we could get everyone on board. And I don't really think we could get everyone on board yeah. right now. <laughs> no, uh, I don't, no, I don't think that. we can, Alex. I yeah. like that's the thing that bothers me, which is which is why I'm like, okay, well, is there a lifeboat? Can we move to an island and in a few generations they can have a lifeboat and move to another island? And like just like eventually you end up with a pug when you start with a wolf, eventually you end up with something that's different. Like that's what happens. Are you talking about are you talking about the paradox of tolerance? Is that your is that your what is conflicting you? Wait, so say that again. I didn't. I missed what you said. The paradox of tolerance, sort of. Popper's so, paradox of tolerance. Yeah, um, sort of. A little bit. Yeah, I mean, a, a little bit because. Related. Look, I think if we look at what we're in a situation in society right now in which um, guardrails for a lot of really destructive behavior have been removed, and the people who would should be policing that aren't. Right, we're not policing it. So we're getting we're we're not saying sit the fuck down Cardi B and shut up. We are saying I love you Cardi B. That's the it's we're the problem. Yeah. Right? We're not policing it. Dysfunction is out there yeah. and in past societies when you know that person gets put on a boat and sent off into an island by themselves, instead they're worshiped. And yeah. so dysfunction will always be there. We need to have the intestinal fortitude to say no. Well, the, okay. So coming back to what you were saying before, I think the dysfunction that is being celebrated now, um, such as, you know, uh, what's her face who quit the Olympics, not even her. Cause she at least had her, the, the one, the golfer, the golfer lady who quit. Right. I don't know. She, I don't know. She, I don't know the story. Oh uh, yeah. It was, this was the last summer or something. She quit or something, some big golf tournament. She's a great golfer because she couldn't face the press because the press were mean to her or something, mm -hmm. right? It was something ridiculous like that. Um, and, um, you know, she was celebrated uh, for... Well, that's her, why she quit. Because she's not about the golf. Health. She's about the drama. That's yeah. what it sounds like. I mean. No, but she's actually a very good... She's actually like one of the top golfers. Yeah, Amber Heard but, might um, be a great actress too, but she's not about acting. She's about drama. I mean, that's like... Fair enough. Fundamentally driven by, I want well, attention. I'm a narcissist. Okay. I'm a cluster B. The point I'm, is, like, that's what it sounds like. Right. right? The mm -hmm. point is, it's not these people who uh, who initially bring it down. Right. This is just the end result. It's it's where the cracks start to form. Yes. That's the problem. Right. So the the cracks mm -hmm. don't start to form with uh, celebrating whatever. And you know, I thought about the word tolerance um, quite a bit. Because people used to say, we don't just want to tolerate people. Like, that sounds sort of like I'm tolerating you, right? But the, at the end of the day, yeah, that's the best you can hope to do in a pluralistic society is tolerance. Because you can't have empathy for 350 million people. 
uh, you can only have for your tribe, your group, right? So, well, and the question um, of so what you have to tolerate the outsiders. Matters. Yeah, that's right. Like, look, I mean, I am take some pluck someone off the earth who's fundamentally different from me in every outward way, but they're about individualism. I'll tolerate them a million times more than I'll tolerate someone who looks, acts, and is exactly like me in every way, but they're a commie. Like, I don't like, that's not, like, we should, I don't think we should, I think we have way too much tolerance for fundamentally evil philosophical beliefs. Yeah. I, I'm sorry. I think we have no, we way too much tolerance them. We celebrate them. We don't just yeah. tolerate them. Doesn't that come I think down? We can... Oh. Sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> no, I was just going to say. You, you've been quiet. Sorry no, about no, that. No, it's happened. all good. I was, I was enthralled. So the, I really appreciate the conversation. But it reminds me a little bit of Marcuse and repressive tolerance, right? Yeah, Where me it's, too. It's weaponized in the other direction. So that way you can sort of tear down what is um, stereotypically tolerant of a society and bring in these new ideas that are completely um, counterproductive to the society. Yeah. yeah. And, and, I think, you know, as much as I uh, despise much of Marcusa and in even even that essay, um, he is correct in that um, the framework of the society does self-perpetuate in some way. Now, he was saying this framework is the somehow capitalistic thing. The framework was the left. So mm -hmm. he got it backwards. Like. He was the he was the authority. He didn't realize that culturally his side was already in the authority position. Um uh but I, I or at least they were on the treadmill, they were on the track. They were on the treadmill, right? Like, yes. They were they were they were the, the the conveyor belt was moving along, and by the time anyone paid mm -hmm. attention to what was going on, like they were gonna be in power anyway. Right. So um but like there is a there is a point to that and i i think tolerance as a i think tolerance is a great uh value to unpack and ask yourself why is it why is it a value to be tolerant and and i think you can get if you unpack that you can get to an answer of well it's valuable to be intolerant of differences that make no moral that have no moral significance like because then you have more interesting people in your culture and it's unfair and unjust to like, I don't like the way Alex does her hair. So I'm not going to tolerate like that. Then you don't get to talk to Alex. You're missing out. It's unjust, whatever it is. I'm not picking. I'm just, you know, <laughs> picking on Alex. But, but like, but if Alex is like, well, I think that, uh, you know, I, I really love Hegel. And I think that the, that the state is the manifestation of the will of the universe and we should all just, you know, uh, bow to the state and let it let the state use us as the fodder for some manifestation or some greater thing. I'm not, I don't want to tolerate Alex, no matter what her hair looks like after that. It, like, that's the thing. That, and there's a, like, tolerance as a blanket value is just wrong. Tolerance towards what? Do you tolerate Charles Manson? Yeah, no. no. And to be fair, that's what uh, Marcuse argued, right? I mean, in order to propel yes. his ideology, he was making this point of like, well, you we should preempt contrary thought. We shouldn't even yeah. tolerate the thought to enter the head. Um, right. And, and that's the way yeah. you propel your, your worldview. Well, yeah. And I, and I think, I think I understand where he's coming from there. Right. Mm -hmm. So it's not um, incorrect in certain so, respects. So Carter, where, where I part ways with you, I don't think you can have 
a global thing. I think you can go to New Hampshire and have a year-long pork fest, but, um, <laughs> um, you know, and call it your home. But uh, I think you can do that and create communities. But uh, you have to be able to create and live in a community that uh, caters to your own thing and um, tolerates other communities, right? That is the, first of all, that's the whole principle behind free speech, right? doesn't matter how disgusting your speech is, you have the right to say it. Um, that's number one. And, oh God, what was the other thing? Yeah, well, yeah, let's my, be careful. Let's be careful. You have the right to say it, but you don't have the right for me to listen to you to say no. that my kids can hang out with yours. Tolerate. I don't have to tolerate you in any way. I can't shoot you. Okay. So let me say, when you have free speech, free speech means you want to say something. Somebody wants to listen to what you want to say. You have to say, and therefore, um, that speech should be allowed to happen regardless of what the speech is, right? That's what free speech means. Yeah, I mean, uh, like, sure, but free speech is a political, I just wanna, since we talked about ostracism earlier and voluntary, uh, you know, cooperation, I wanna distinguish what is classically meant by free speech, which is a political freedom. It's a political freedom. Um, you don't have free speech in my house. If you come into my house and start telling me how awesome Che Guevara is, I'm going to kick you out. Yeah. Like, I don't, I don't want to hear it. I don't well, want my kids to hear it. Right. I mean, so like, yeah. you know, property rights, Trump free speech. So the only reason this is even an issue is we have public squares and the government's decided they're in charge of some property and blah, 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 blah. Right. So like it, when, it's like when people say like, well, should you be able to allow fire in a movie theater? I don't know whose movie theater, ask them. You actually, that's you, the answer. That's it. Does that, you actually, it's not 100% true. You're not allowed to. I forget what the, but it's not like a cut and dry. But so the thing about free speech is like, let's say in North Korea, you're not allowed to say to your child, I love you in your own house because you're only supposed to love the, the supreme leader. Right. I'm sure they just invented another word for love, but sure. Yeah. And you're, I, there's no concept of I, according to Yomi Park, right? So you can't even say I love. There's, there's no whatever. But um, uh, the second, so that's one thing is free speech, right? So you, you have to have a certain amount of tolerance. You have to let, if there's somebody who wants to say something and there's other people who want to listen to that person talk, you have to let that happen unless they're inciting violence according to the U.S. law. The second thing I would say is human condition or human tendencies or behavior or whatever. Why doesn't communism work? Because it is against human, the human condition. It's against, it, there are no human impulses that would allow communism to thrive, right? So you cannot force anything, including anarchism or even individualism, which I have, it's a sort of an oxymoron paradox that I haven't quite gotten through, but you can't force that on people because, you know, you can't fight human nature. You have to... I'm not sure what you, you mean you, by forcing individualism. I mean, I mean like, you have to have this conversation that, about, like, you need a culture, yeah. you need a philosophy. Like, yeah. okay. Okay. But, like... I absolutely can. If I am in a small community with you guys and we've got some sort of pseudo free thing going on, let's say we all move to New Hampshire and let's say 
I have my feelings about the New Hampshire libertarian community, but whatever. Let's say it's a great community. We're in the community. We're loving it. Okay. Mm -hmm. uh, that doesn't mean, like, if someone comes in to New Hampshire and it's like, we, we can kick them out. Like, we can force them to, like, we don't, there's no, if they're on our property, we can, we can kick them out. We don't have, and we don't have to tolerate someone. If someone comes in and says, I want to proselytize communism, we can say, well, I mean, I guess fundamentally we don't, we're not going to shoot you for it, but no one's going to let you stand on their property to do it. Uh, and like, right, so where are you going to do it, man? It's all like, property. <laughs> yeah. Where are you going to do it? It's like, well, I'm going to send everyone an email. It's like, well, our servers won't let, like, I guess yeah. you could radio beam it in. And in which case, like, you know, I, you know, maybe you, you get that kind of stuff, but it's like, don't get caught up in like the, I think a lot of people are caught up in like the status quo of where things are now. And I'm, we're, we're having a conversation that's in this world where we're even contemplating that there's some kind of philosophical and psychological change in humans, which is like not at all where we are now. Like there's one guy in chats yelling like, you're, you're willfully blind if you don't understand that capitalism is what allows ideologies like Marcuse's to go like what? It's, I mean, it's just like, of course I understand. Of course I understand that. the prop, But capitalism is neither good nor bad in the sense of it doesn't guarantee that the culture and philosophy doesn't suck. It won't last if people, if Marcuse wins, if the critical theorist wins, or if then the postmodernist win or whatever. If you have those people take over, you will lose it. Like, it won't yeah. work. Like, that's just very obvious. Yeah. But the same is true for communism. Like, if it's a bunch of individualists, that won't work either, which is why, like, I think pr if we want to talk practically, practically, we I, I have my long-term site set, like, okay, we know what I want. I want to study psychology, want to study philosophy, want to figure out how to <laughs> move people this direction, want to figure out how to raise the next generation of kids, want to help build humanity to go the direction it needs to, and, and probably should sequester with a bunch of like-minded people and get as much liberty as I possibly can for as long as I can. I don't know what that looks like or how it looks, but it definitely involves keeping people who are horrible out. Like if you're in New Hampshire, probably screen for people coming in from Massachusetts and do something about it because uh, you don't want them. All right. Especially people from Massachusetts. Yeah. So, okay. So what you're saying is, is is uh, community-based governance, let's say, um, almost federalism, right? Almost, except with no yeah. federal level, right? It's supposed to be Well, like, yeah, I mean, well, look, there's no reason for centralization either. You mentioned the population before. You can do a bunch of small communities that have different customs and different whatever. Like, that's fine. There's no, there's no requirement for federalism, right? And, and the thing I don't like, you know, I'm not in New Hampshire. And one of the reasons I'm not a member of the Libertarian Party and not in New Hampshire is they are not at all focused on what I talked about. They're not at all focused about philosophy or psychology. Um, they yeah. tend to be very much reliant on, well, if the state stays out, everything will be fine. And that's just not true. If the state stays out, we devolve into watching the Kardashians. Like, we need something else. We need to have something else that we're focused on. And so that's why, like, I would prefer a liberty-loving society that was also trying to address these larger issues of, like, how do we police socially? What do we kind of move forward? You know, uh, how do we promote the values that we need to be promoting long-term? Mm. Not just saying it's a free-for-all and, like, you know, whatever you're doing is just as good, whatever is whatever, you know, 
Exofathom, Exofathom is doing, uh, right? Like, I don't know. It depends. If he's taking a bunch of K, who knows? Right now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm well, I'm wondering too, um, you know, because it, it does seem a little bit like, and I'll, this is a question I had for you, Carter, too, is um, I've noticed because I've really dive deep into mythology and stuff. And I've noticed that sometimes what I see is a sort of eroding of a grander narrative. And I'm wondering if we can have a co cohesive society sans that narrative. Now, I don't necessarily mm. think that it has to be religious. Um, and, and I do appreciate philosophy and I'm not, you know, subscribing to a particular religion here, but I do wonder if the grand narrative is the element that we're missing, kind of like what you're saying, Carter, with the culture, um, that narrative usually helps, um, buttress that culture. And I feel like right now yep. we have, we have slipped so much as a society in America that we've kind of lost our narrative. We're oh, no yes. longer we're no longer about freedom because we're racist or whatever. And right. we just well, the like, narrative's yeah. changed to right. we're a bunch of evil white conquerors who ruined right. everything for everyone else and like right. stole stuff. That's the narrative so, now. So why do we right? deserve a future? You know, we don't. Because, but right. by that we narrative, don't. we don't. That's right. why that's the narrative. They, right. Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's why that story was chosen because it's right. horribly demoralizing, right? It is absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> uh I Look, I think there's a lot to unpack there. Um, I think there's some... So I have heard, although I am skeptical, skeptical generally about psychology, so I'll, I'll put that out there. I have heard that there is uh, often some kind of need for belief or whatever in people. And um, w one of the reasons I'm skeptical of that is often when people do studies like that, they do it in a context that doesn't contemplate... Uh, other ways of having narrative like, Oh, like, well, it, it must be religion or it must be like, we must need, it must be a belief thing that we need. I don't know. Yeah. Maybe it's a meaning thing or maybe it's something else. that doesn't have to be that. And or you're measuring it this narrative. way. Right. Mm -hmm. So, um, and I do think a narrative helps, you know, Motown, you were talking about uh, NPCs and then we joked zombies or whatever, right? Like you're talking about the, the normies and NPCs. I do think a narrative helps them to have an intuitive feeling about what direction things should be going and what's right and what's not right through this being a part of this this narrative right like i, I it certainly helps christians you know when you watch when you see um christians have a narrative about the world uh, i mean different forms have different narratives but mormons have a narrative which is slightly different someone mentioned uh Zinu in chat like Certainly the Scientologists have their own narrative, right? Um, which leads them in a particular direction. Communist countries tend to try and enforce um, leader worship narratives, right? So like Mao and Stalin, like cult of personality kind of things, right? Where, and there's a narrative. This is why they like year zero. They want to jettison everything from the past. They have a year zero. They destroy the four olds. And they're trying to instantiate this new narrative, mm. right? Uh, based on rah rah Mao or whatever it is, um, so I I don't know the answer, and I don't know. I had a question. I had someone ask me once. Um, I don't know if you. It's like an old interview. I did an interview with uh, what's her name, Julianne Davis or some, something like that. She was she was the actress from. She was in uh, Eyes Wide Shut, and then she got mm -hmm. she got canceled for like being pro Trump or something. She got like canceled for not yes. being for being a wrong thinker in hollywood yeah. um and and uh 
she she would argue with me that uh, she's kind of spiritual and not an atheist. And she would argue like, well, humans need something. And I would say, well, I'm not, you know, but it's not true. That was the argument that we were having back and forth. Mm -hmm. Right. And she was like, right. well, um, but you need to come up with, she's like, fine. Then you need to basically what she said was fine. Then you need to come up with an atheist narrative. They need like, there needs to be, if you don't want it to be mystical, there's gotta be a narrative people can latch onto. And there might be something there. I don't, there I don't is. know. It feels disingenuous to invent something and be like, you know, I'm, I, I'm not an atheist, but, um, uh, I do believe there is something that even you, godless hellbound people can grab onto and uh that is uh um the idea that there is a reality and you can discover it and reality is truth right mm -hmm. almost in the religious sense or mystical sense of truth but it doesn't right like let's say capitalism like pure free market capitalism works because it is aligned with truth someone made something better and nobody said this is better than that or you know, that kind of thing, or this is better than before. It's just people sort of felt like, hey, I want that. And that's like aligned with, or I need that. That's aligned with truth, right? So if you let, if nobody, this is what you're saying, Carter, if nobody dictates like, uh, you know, hey, these are the rules, then truth, you can let truth flourish. It won't necessarily Well, flourish. but you have to have a population but, who is going to police ideas that don't comport with truth. And if they're not willing to do that and people and they're willing to listen to ideas that are, I mean, if you just look at philosophy in the past 200 years, it is like baked in some really hairy, crazy, stupid crap just baked right in from the bottom. Like, I mean, I mentioned Hegel earlier, whom who Marx, uh, you know, relied on heavily. Like this weird mystical, the state is the manifestation of the will of the universe. I'm like, uh, that's just fucking psycho. And you went and based an entire system that then killed 100 million people last century on that? The answer is yes. And, and it's hard to imagine how crazy ideas have taken root, but they do. Um, people let the, So if you don't have a population that's going to police this stuff and say, wait a minute, wait a minute, Marx. What the fuck? Like, we're not doing this. And, and, and you know, I, I think, like I said before, I don't know the answer because I don't know that. I don't know how to convince people to not do that. Well, uh, some people uh, won't, like Alex said, but some, yeah. but a lot of people will. I, yeah. I just, I just want to say, Alex, very quickly, that the way to police it is, I mean, the way to police it is with more speech, right? Not, not through might or anything. You just give better arguments. That's what I would say. Um, I would say, I mean, if we, if we, or I'm trying to clarify what you mean by police. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So when I say police, I, I mean police through social pressure, but that includes up to and including ostracism. So, uh, look, let's say let let's say we had our community again. We're all in all four of us are in a community and with our families and, and whatever who else in chat wants to be in. We're all in a community um, and someone starts coming in. Spouting really bad philosophy really like postmodernism stuff or they they start spouting you know teaching marks we don't have to sell anything to them we don't have to buy anything from them we don't have to inter if we do that no. if we if we say mm -mm, like literally i want literally nothing to do with you they need to go away they'll die they won't no one will hire them 
known work. Like, that's why I'm not against, like, people complain, a lot of conservatives complain, like, oh, I don't like this idea that, you know, there's there's people enforcing their ideology on who they'll do business with, whatever. Like, I get that. I get why you don't like it, because it's being used against you. <laughs> like, I get it. But it's actually the only alternative that you've got, other than government doing it. The problem is, you are in a, a you're immersed in a cesspool society where like the worst people are doing it. If the roles were reversed and individualists were saying, oh, you know what? Until you decide not to be a commie, we don't want anything to do with you, man. Get the hell out. Because we've read our Solzhenitsyn. We know what communism looks like and we don't want that around here. You're fine to teach it. You can teach it. You can talk about it. You can say, here's the arguments that the communists make. Let's evaluate it. You can do that in a like didactic way. But if you start trying to push propaganda, you're out, man. Mm-hmm. We don't want anything to do with you. And we're not going to shoot you. We're just going to stop. You're not coming to the barbecue. Uh, you, you're not going to work at my company. Like, and, and I know that sounds super harsh. And a lot of people are really don't like that. Um, it's kind of like a cancel mob. I, I admit it sounds kind of like a cancel mob, but the problem we've got right now is the people who agreed with the founding fathers didn't form cancel mobs. I prefer social right? gulags. They, but yeah. They, yeah, they let bad ideas in. Well, but they let yeah. bad ideas in, right? And and those bad ideas, you know, the thing that sucks is ninety nine out of a hundred times you can let the bad ideas in in your lifetime, nothing really bad will happen. But your great 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 grandkids are going to suffer because. Well, that's what Hegel see. did, right? Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Oh, and I Sorry, think, Alex. Go ahead. No, it's okay. <laughs> I, I think one of the problems with the whole bad ideas being let in is that it, we're in a situation where a lot of people didn't take the bad ideas seriously. That they said it's just in college, which it's like, yeah, but you told everyone to go to college, and now everyone's in college <laughs> learning this. Right. And then now they're going to all the companies and demanding these bad ideas be enacted. And I I think that's part of the problem is that no, it's just Mm -hmm. like, yeah, if we had responded to them in serious ways when they started popping up in universities and going, no, that's stupid. And here's why. And like, you don't get tenure. That's yeah. And you don't get tenure because that's a dumb idea. And you're writing about masturbation and that's your paper. And I don't understand. You're writing about your own masturbation and that's your paper. (laughs) That's a problem. I'm not giving you your PhD. Okay. Like if we had reacted in that way in the universities, then it wouldn't have spread as much, but Mm -hmm. we didn't take it seriously. And that's the well, oh, very few people took it seriously and tried to address it. Everybody else was like, well, this doesn't matter. And and because of that kind of like, oh, it doesn't matter attitude, oh, it grew. It grew to such a, yes. an extent that it's affecting everybody. And the other thing, though, is that when it comes to the atheists and meaning and everything and the God-shaped hole, I found meaning. I, it was not a struggle as an atheist to find meaning to find purpose in life. (laughs) And I think, and the thing is though, is that blaming all wokeism or suggesting that all atheists are woke, like wrapping those two up too tightly is a problem is because there are woke churches. They exist. There's lots of woke churches. There's Mm -hmm. bishops, there's uh, reverends, there's priests. There's a Pope. 
there's a pope <laughs> they're all saying woke bullshit so it's like they're not immune to it atheists are not immune to it either even though we like to act like we're rationals but uh right. we uh, i think atheists are more likely to fall to nihilism and that's how wokeism gets in yes. but uh when it comes to church or state I, worship but yeah, yeah or state worship yeah Either way, though, I, I think everyone has every demographic has some form of susceptibility to wokeness uh, if they're struggling for meaning or they want their community to survive. Because there's a lot of wokeness that is about destroying a community if it doesn't uh, start, you know, doing it. Because they do the things that Carter actually suggests. They stop working with people. They stop giving them stuff, and then the the church falls apart you know no one supports it and everything so they start saying esg yeah they're BS. they're actually good at this yeah like they're much better at propagating their ideas because they had to um and i you know i just one thing i want to say about the bad ideas coming in uh to universities is um we actually lost a war intellectually that i don't think anyone realized and no one paid attention to their first wave was to not was not to approach universities with craziness. That was not that was not salvo one. The first major war they won was pragmatism. Um, it was the William James stuff. It was like, well, um, you can just take little bits of ideas from different philosophies and whatever works at the time is pragmatic. Like that pragmatism won. And once pragmatism won, we were dead because now. People could come in and throw together ideas and they would just concoct a scenario where that idea made sense. And it was like, oh, pragmatism. So we should love the idea. And it has some value. Everything has value. Like they pragmatism was a way it pragmatism was the sniper that took out the guards and then they infiltrated. Right. Mm -hmm. Like that's what happened. Uh, and like there needed to be intellectual guards that were like, no, 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 no. Pragmatism is not a valid philosophy. Pragmatism is evil. Mm -hmm. um that's not yeah. how you just ethics are not pragmatic right this is not it's not pragmatism is that's not the right way to th do this and the but the guards were were killed and so you know lo and behold and then someone you know 100 years later or 250 years later gets a phd in masturbation and like okay here we are right like <laughs> on that note i do have to go but i I'm, i was glad i got to ask you know what questions. my daughter's going to um initiate the use of force against me if You're i don't go trouble. eat um <laughs> so, so we're uh, all going okay i should i should yeah. probably also go are there any yeah. final thoughts that any of you have though before we take no. off no, I just, uh, yeah go ahead mo sorry uh, uh, yeah i just i just want to express my appreciation for uh you know for uh you talking through um, this, I'm not convinced yet, although I did get okay. some clarity on, uh, you sort of want to do it by starting a community and hoping it grows. Um, or yeah, just or even doing the research, like we don't have the science to even do it. Right. So, yeah. or just hoping it, it at least, you know, can be stable, which I mean, that's totally reasonable to me. So, um, yeah, I could believe in that um yeah but thanks it was it was interesting it was interesting should we should we continue i've got a bunch of questions that were asked that we didn't get to should we do this in a I, we need we're supposed to be alex knows this and alex is on my case about this we probably should have like some special content for supporters 
Should we like move? Should we do more of these discussions for supporters somewhere else and like could, continue this stuff? We could do it on locals. I don't know, like. Yeah. how much our infrastructure we've, we've is done then. zero on locals look i will we'll figure out a venue in which to address uh, yes. some of the other questions and, and continue to have this conversation yeah. so well, um discord has voice channels you can have them on there yeah. yeah we could do it right in discord yeah 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 that's true so well and all right uh, beverly is gone I don't know if you saw that. So. Yeah, no, well, I figured she was gone. Excel wanted to say something. So. Oh, I, I just wanted oh. to second Mo's uh, 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 statement there. I really appreciate this episode. And thanks, Carter, again. I always watch your show. And all right. Yeah, it's been a lot of fun. So thank you. Thank you. Thank, thanks, man. I mean, thanks to, to all three of you. I, I want to, I was going to say the other guy. To you and not include Alex because she's around all the time. And I see Alex. Yeah, yeah. Time, she's but. a staple. <laughs> yes. I, uh, Alex thank is... you also to Alex for showing up. <laughs> yeah. 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 Yes. So, um, that's Alex is on like six out of eight shows. On, on she's always, six. she's very busy <laughs> and she's very smart and she always has good insight. So, uh, I don't even know. How was your show on Tuesday, Alex? Good it was good? good. It was a good discussion. It actually covered some of the stuff like psychology, uh, atheists, you know, and wokeism and stuff like that. Cause the guy was from atheists for Liberty. So, uh, okay. you know, if you guys want to check that out, it's probably a good idea. It, it tails with some of this conversation. Cool. All right. Well, look on that note, thank you everyone for watching. Go to unsafespace.com to support us Friday. Jeremy Kaufman interviews coming out tomorrow night. Token minority report is out. Alex, are you on token minority report tomorrow night? Alex is there. So you get more Alex tomorrow and I'll see you Monday for narrative <laughs> dissonance. I think that's everything. Thanks again. Have a good night. Thanks for sticking around until the end. If you're new to Unsafe Space, check out our deep content library that includes discussions with everyone from James Lindsay to Brett Weinstein. And please consider helping to fund our work by visiting unsafespace.com slash donate. You can find us on a variety of social media platforms, and you can find a community of like-minded individuals on our Unsafe Space Discord server, which is open to financial supporters at any level. We hope to see you there. Warning, this is an unsafe space. Dangerous ideas have been detected. The content of this production does not meet WHO health and safety standards. Please report to a United Nations Sanitization Center immediately. Association with the following individuals is strictly prohibited. Experts who benefit from printing money agree that printing money does not cause price inflation. Trust me, just two more weeks to slow the spread of monkeypox. If you think about it, no one should be allowed to express opinions. But don't. Think about it, I mean. That's not your job. Thinking has been scientifically proven to be less efficient than compliance. Science, scientific and scientifically are registered trademarks of the World Economic Forum. Unauthorized use is prohibited. Computer voice Curtis, never mind, that last line is fake news.
please disregard it and return to your safe space immediately. There will be cake.